how are you, Irish? How's it going? Yeah, not bad, you know. Um, I went and picked up my copy of Zelda Breath of the Wild today. Oh my god, right. I think we should open talking about this. Right. Um, have you played any of it yet, Irish? No, because that's, that's the amazing thing about this. I've got my special edition of Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild that comes with the soundtrack from the game and a statuette of the Master Sword. Oh. And I got some extra pre-order freebies with it. So I got like poster and art cards and a keyring and stuff from game. Right. And and I don't have a machine to play it on. Because, oh. because <clears throat> I left it to basically too late to pre-order it for wave one by a day. Oh no. Oh my god. <laughs> so Oh Irish, that's the word I'm so I know I'm laughing. I'm so sorry about that. That is dreadful. No, oh my god. Yeah. But by, by... See, I know someone who had the reverse problem. They shared a picture of their Amazon shipping status, and it was like, arriving today, Nintendo Switch. Arriving two to three days, Breath of the Wild. Oh, <laughs> no. Yeah. See, that's agonizing, because I will fully admit, like, just when I think that Nintendo is on their ass, like, this comes out. And from all accounts, like, it's stunning. I've heard good things. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm I'm in no rush, but I've heard good things. Yeah, I mean, I'm. I mean, obviously, I got it, and when I eventually have the machine to play it, I will do, and then I can give you feedback on it from there. But it's it's the thing that's come out since then that's been interesting. Oh yeah. Uh, people keep licking their game cartridges. Oh yeah. What? Yep, it's uh, it's been a thing for people to lick their game cartridges. Right. You know that whole thing about, and it's quite a British thing as far as I'm aware. Uh, listeners in other countries, if you do this too, let me know. But right, the thing of ah, oh, that's disgusting. Try that, and then it just goes round the party, and everyone is like, oh yeah, that is disgusting, and hands it on to someone else, and goes, yeah, try that. That's disgusting. The same cartridge? No, no, no. Just like a drink or a bit of food or something. Just the concept of. You experience something disgusting, you go, that's disgusting, and you hand it on to someone else and go, try that, it's disgusting. Yeah. Have you never been in that situation? Um, yes, I guess, I think. Not off the top of my head, probably. Well, there was just a day fairly recently where the entirety of games journalism turned into that. Yep. Where <laughs> someone picked the cartridge and was like, that's disgusting! And then suddenly everyone had to write a think piece about how Switch cartridges tasted disgusting. Yeah. There is a valid... Nintendo have confirmed that they have added a bitter flavor agent to the Switch cartridges yeah. so that small children won't eat them. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's that's the, genius. It's the you know the don't bite your nail stuff. Yeah, it's the same stuff. Yeah, that yeah. they put in that um, not nail polish, but the stuff you put on your nails to stop you biting them. Yeah. Oh my god. And it's so... baked right into the plastic. So that's genius. I haven't done it yet. <laughs> I thought I might save it for this. It's just making people do it more. Yeah, ironically, it has encouraged a whole bunch of grown adults to start licking their games. Mm. Like, it probably is putting small children off eating it, but it's encouraging grown adults to lick their games and then write about it. I'll I'll be honest, I'd do it. I'd try it, because I'm, I'm now fascinated by how bad it could be. 
Okay, here we go. Case um, <laughs> yes, excellent. A live. This is an exclusive <clears throat> for Danish Shepherd. Irish is going to lick a Nintendo Switch brand new special edition copy of Zelda Breath of the Wild. Irish, take it away. Okay. Doesn't have an aroma. Smells like plastic. Here we go. Okay. And, yep. Uh, yep. Um, Mmm. 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 Okay, you sound like you're enjoying it. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, hmm. Um, well. Let's just say it tastes like an adventure. And welcome to Dangerously Unprepared. I am Simon, and joining me this week are Irish. Hello! And Rob. Allons-y. And Jack is somewhere else, being a weeb. <laughs> he is, he's in the, he's still in the country, he's just in the western, southern side. Where, where's yes, he gone? He is, he's at Minami. Ah, uh, Yes. Or Southampton. That is also an accurate way of describing it. <laughs> <laughs> He's at Manamicon. Excellent. Normally a haunt for me as well, but we just couldn't do it this year. Oh, yeah, I remember you saying now. That's, yeah. gu- that's gutting, man. I'm sorry, I shouldn't have brought it up. No, no, it's it's a thing, because, you know, social media is just flooding with it. Among- yeah, uh... that's the whole thing. When there's an event you can't make it to. It's yeah. like, you're just going to be reading about it the whole time. So let's take your mind off it. Yeah. Does anyone have anything they want to cover before we get started? Like because this could be a long one based on past experience. Yeah. Um, well, oh, well, you go ahead. You go ahead. One thing. Uh, this day. Right. This day. This day. This day. <laughs> three years ago. Yeah. We had a certain. Uh, cameo appearance from someone. Yeah? Yeah. Evie. Okay. Uh, <laughs> this this day three years ago, back in early World 1 Stage 1, for me, was when Evie was born. Oh, uh, when she was the, actually born. Uh, I see. Like, I thought you meant... <laughs> this, 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 this day was when uh, she appeared on the podcast. For the yeah, first. Oh, three-year anniversary of her first podcast appearance. <laughs> <laughs> she got started super young. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They say it's helpful in the business. Yeah, so it was her birthday <laughs> on uh, on Wednesday. So. Oh, yes, I remember seeing. Uh, did she have a nice time? She had a fantastic time. Yeah? She's actually got her um, her birthday party with the kids on Sunday. Excellent. So she's going to have even more party stuff to do. Is there like a theme to the party or is it just a... She's going to... She's going to... To explain to listeners, she's basically going to like a um, soft play uh, climbing frame type attraction. Like a a jungle gym. Yeah, type thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. There's a play farm at the brewery. 
Oh, yes, I've heard about that one. I remember... Uh, do you remember Ballyhoo in Cheltenham? I don't, but I've been told of it. Oh, wait, of course. No, because you... Yes, you moved over later, didn't you? Yeah. 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 So like that. Yeah. A, a yes. dangerous area that is masked in soft sort of <laughs> yes. crash mat. <laughs> it's a dangerous warehouse. All, cushioned all with carpool cushions, yes. <laughs> wait, you'll have to let me know how it is, because I have cast aspersions on Play Farm many a time, simply because I think there's something very sinister about building a barn indoors. <laughs> mm. It is, yeah. Like, I guess... Are they and by barn do they then mean that the children are naught but animals? You have and met that's children. The right? implication. <laughs> You've met children, right? I have met a number of children. Yes. <laughs> but yes, yeah, so she's got that, and it's the the theme for it is uh, princesses and pirates. Oh wow! And uh, you know, there's no. Restriction to that, you can, you know, if a girl wants to be a pirate and a, a guy and a boy wants to be a princess, they're more than welcome to. Both be a pirate princess, or both, even better. Yeah, yeah, pirate princesses are a thing. Um, there's only, yeah, yeah, definitely. Sorry, I was about to move on to the next topic, unless there was, but then I realised I was just quickly changing topic without checking if you'd finished or not. <laughs> No, that, that is my that is my bit for this week. My okay. bit is that they've buffed Bastion to the moon in Overwatch, and I'm really salty about it. They've oh, buffed really? him. They they've buffed him so hard that they've already nerfed him. Right, <laughs> and, and the buff came out Tuesday. Oh. Yeah, I thought I read something about him being nerfed already. Yep. Uh, basically, because he's mostly useful when he's stationary, mm. he doesn't get picked a lot. And he was also very easy to counter. So they gave him some damage reduction and they gave him some extra armor and they changed the speed at which he transformed. And the end result is that he's essentially unkillable. <laughs> uh, so for a few days, the meta of Overwatch has been Bastion all the time. Uh, like I'm trying to find the list someone put out of things they had tested in practice mode to see if Bastion could survive it. Right. Bearing yeah. in mind that he is not a tank. He's support class, isn't he? Uh, yeah, because he's a turret, mm. essentially. Yeah. yeah. So he's, he's not a tank. He is not supposed to have a lot of damage soaking. However, with the buff, things he can survive. An entire ultimate from Reaper, who is the high damage tank killer, yeah. Won't kill him. Wow. Uh, an entire clip of rockets from Farah, who is an offensive character. Uh, he can sit in front of Torbjorn's turret, Torbjorn being another support character who makes a turret, and it won't hurt him as long as he heals through it. Torbjorn's ultimate, where the turret becomes much, much more powerful, also won't hurt him as long as he heals through it. Jesus. Um... Genji, who is the character who's basically designed to counter Bastion, can put his entire ultimate on him and it won't kill him. Uh, Soldier can empty an entire clip from his machine gun and the rockets as well into Bastion. It won't kill him. Uh, Tracer essentially can't put out damage quicker than Bastion can heal it, so can do no damage to him. And her explosive ultimate won't kill him. 
Uh, McCree's ultimate, which is supposed to be instant death as long as it charges up, will leave him with 60 health points left. Uh, Zarya's entire ammo stack won't kill him, and eight bombs from Junkrat, which is an entire clip, won't kill him. So, yeah, he's tougher than the tanks now. So you can't kill him, basically. You can. I if mean, everyone gangs up on him, then he'll die. The guys, the guys I play with worked out a pretty simple strategy. You use Sombra to hack him to take him out of turret form. You use Zenyata to put a Discord Orb on him, so he's it counteracts the damage reduction because Discord Orbs increase damage done to the target, mm. and then you kill him as usual. So he can be countered, but it really means that everyone takes a Bastion, everyone then has to take a Sombra and a Zenyata, and that's half the team. Yeah. And you'll probably take a Reinhardt to put in front of the Bastion. That's two-thirds of the team. Uh, and that's quite a coordination a effort as well. That's quite a lot to <laughs> coordinate every time as well. My as God, as they'll need a healer. That's five out of six characters locked down just by that. <laughs> yes, just to trying to beat one character. Yep. Oh, so, genius. yeah, they've, they've already nerfed him because I think they acknowledge that they might have overdone it. Whilst we're on Overwatch, did I did my uh, eye spy that there is a brand new character set to release or has been released? There is. Yes, there is. She is out on the public test uh, server. Okay. So not in the main game yet, but we've all had a chance to play around with her and get to know her. Okay. She's really interesting. Yeah. She's a centaur robot. Right. So four legs and like ram's horns on the head. Uh, and in the lore... Basically, it's uh, an 11-year-old robotics genius from Numbani, uh, which is a country that features prominently in Overwatch, uh, has repurposed one of the OR-15 defense robots from Numbani into this new hero by upgrading it. And Orisa, which is the character's name, OR-15 and an A on the end, Orisa, has it's it's sort of a combination of some of the greatest hits of other characters, which when you realise it's an eleven year old who is a fan of the Overwatch team making it makes perfect sense. <laughs> That's so she's so cool. given it a, a mini version of Zarya's Graviton grenade. Right. Which is very cool. A shield that she can throw and will deploy where it lands. So it is static, but she can throw it to where it needs to be. Okay. It's slightly weaker than Symmetra's, so it's half the strength of Reinhardt's shield because they don't want to take that primary no. skill away from Reinhardt. Equally, the Zarya grenade doesn't last as long or do as much damage. And she has a thing called Fortify, which is where for just a few seconds she's unstoppable. Like, okay. uh, Graviton won't slow her, May's freeze gun won't slow her, Reinhardt charging into her will bounce off and stun himself. She's Jesus. literally unstoppable for just a few seconds. Is that her ult? No. no. That's just a thing she can do every 10 seconds. Oh, wow. Her ult is she drops um, a generator on the ground and anyone within, I think it's like a 30 meter, no, 20 meter diameter uh gets a damage boost similar to if Mercy is on them, boosting their damage. Oh, wow. So the whole team gets a damage buff. So drop that on a uh, defense point. And... Exactly. When the big push comes in, throw the shield down, drop the ult, everyone's putting out massive damage. That's amazing. And it stacks. So if Mercy is <laughs> actually buffing someone with damage output, they get double the benefit. Oh, man. Jesus. Bit of a game changer. Yes. 
Wow. That's pretty cool, though. I like the idea of it being of her being like a centaur because I, uh, I, that explains an awful lot because they released an image of her quite early on, as I recall, but it was only from like the waist down. So you didn't, sorry, the waist <laughs> up, sorry. So you didn't see that she's a centaur. Yes. Yeah. That, uh, there were rumors she was going to be a quadruped for a while. As, as, so those rumors turned out to be true. That's really cool. I've seen two thing, two little things since the release, though. Uh, yep. One one was a happy thing, and one was a bit of a aww type thing. All right. The happy thing was someone did a comic of uh, her standing there and Reinhardt next to her, kind of like staring at her, and eventually he goes, "Can I ride you?" Uh... The final <laughs> panel is him, like him in his armor, riding the steed. <laughs> <laughs> well, that would ask. be quite a fearsome combination, to be honest. <laughs> yeah. And then the uh, the bit where they go ah was a, a tweet from Terry Crews just basically going, "I wish it was me." Ah, <laughs> oh, he still he wants in on that game he, so bad. Yeah, but yeah, it wasn't Doomfist, so still could happen. It probably will. Well, I I don't know. I don't personally think that Doomfist will be a playable character in Overwatch at any point. That doesn't mean he won't appear in Overwatch, and it doesn't mean that Terry Crews won't voice him. I just don't think he'll be a hero. No. Is he a big bad or something? Oh, yeah. Okay. Like, the reason Effie created Orisa was after Doomfist attacked Numbani and left the airport in ruins. It's uh, the gauntlet got stolen, wasn't it? Yeah, it was Doomfist's gauntlet. So is the, the payload that you're pushing in the Numbani map. The new Doomfist. But since the uh, release of the last patch... The container on the payload that holds the gauntlet is shattered, and the gauntlet is missing. Ah, that's cool. That's the, that's a nice little touch. Yeah, little tease that Doomfist is coming. Like uh, the the airport is where you spawn for that map, and it is in ruins, as per the tease shots for Arissa. Mm-hmm. And the gauntlet just isn't there anymore. So Doomfist has been. See, I like. There's that. Uh, I mean, there's kind of like a narrative that flows through. In a way, like for the like, the, it'll do obviously like big events and stuff, and there'll obviously be a big, like, a big event for when he finally shows up or whatever. Which is what I'm expecting, because yeah, um, the Halloween event, yeah, uh, was Night of the Living Junkenstein, which was amazing. Yes, but one of the things about it mm-hmm. is that it wasn't a sort of team versus team game. No. And that's what I'm expecting for Doomfist. I'm expecting it to be an event where it's team versus Doomfist. That's so cool. So it's like um, man versus mech. Yes, similar. And we got where the mech is Doomfist in the Halloween one. Then, like, what were you fighting? Were you fighting uh, other? Well, you're up against AI. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. You're you're going after Junkenstein and Junkenstein's monster, who is Roadhog. I see. Yes. And then there was Mercy, Reaper, and and Soldier. Yes. Yeah. Oh, awesome! Well, that's pretty cool. Yeah. So that's some Overwatch news. Mostly, I... I'm still salty about the Bastion buff, but I played <laughs> yeah. some. Competitive season four started on Tuesday. I played my first games of it last night. Three games, three wins. Oh, nice. Yep, I'm happy with that as a good start. Yeah, good job, man. That's pretty cool. 
Um, I was going to tell you guys about a brief gaming experience I had uh, yesterday, in fact. Um, I had been like catching quite a lot of the, and you guys have probably seen a fair bit of it too, there's a lot of marketing going around for Halo Wars 2. Um, and I didn't really get into Halo Wars, but like one of my friends raved about it. So the uh, there was some marketing that came up for Halo Wars, and it shows like the brute... Uh, main antagonist and like I thought you know actually that looks kind of cool it looks kind of like more old school Halo the stuff that I uh, preferred before 4 and 5 so um, you know I thought I'd give it a look I downloaded this free demo um, I got halfway through it I didn't like it very much <laughs> did you guys play any Halo Wars? no no, no I didn't look like a great RTS to be honest so it I isn't. sort of skipped it it really isn't. It doesn't know what it wants to be. Like, that's, like, it, it, it kind of, like, in a way, it's really weird, considering when it came out, but it is a more limited version of Command & Conquer. Like, come I, I still feel that a game that came out in the early, I think, 90s is still better than it. So I thought, if that's the case, then I don't have any time for this. So I, I stopped. Um, but it looked pretty. Um, but that's not what I wanted to talk about, really. What I did want to talk about, and I don't know whether you guys have seen it, is there was a new trailer for a few things, actually. Um, one was Guardians of the Galaxy, which I'm guessing you've all seen. Yeah. But the one I really mm -hmm. wanted to talk about was the new Alien Covenant trailer. If oh, you yeah. guys have seen I that. I saw that today. No, I haven't seen it yet. Okay, um, so I won't, in that case, I won't go into it too much. However, the ending shot of that trailer, I will just say concerned me somewhat. Like, all of the trailer is incredible, and it looks atmospheric. It looks like Ridley Scott has once again done some epic world building. The, the cinematography on it is gorgeous, until the last shot of the trailer. Um... And you might be able to guess why, but, all right, put it this way, without spoiling it, Irish, the last shot of the trailer, did yeah. you get any bad vibes from it? Um, I don't, not really, but... I this is bad know. podcasting because we've not explained what it is. No. Um, I mean, do you I mind can't... if I say Simon? Uh, no, I don't mind at all. Okay, so like I say, you've got this really great atmospheric trailer that builds up tension, and it's uh, you're seeing what this amazing landscape of this new world that are these heroes are, or, or cast are going to be exploring. And at the end, there is some kind of um, um, air vehicle. Uh, I think a shuttle of some type is basically lifting up in the air in what appears to be a desperate bid to oh, try and yeah. escape. Yeah, yeah, and. You've seen like flashes of obviously the alien every now and then, but you don't see it. It's just like doom, doom, doom. And like every time there's like a beat in the music, there's like a flash of light and you see like it moving past the camera, super quick alien style. And then at the very end, it just goes bam. And it just gives you like a clear image of a xenomorph landing on top of this shuttle and trying to break through the windscreen of the shuttle and i've got to say the cg for it 
I was like, oh, like it proper took me out of like this <laughs> otherwise great trailer. And I, I didn't know. I was like, oh, dear. Like, I thought we would have got past this point by now. That kind of looks to me a little bit Alien versus Predator 2. Um, I don't know, but I guess the rest of it looks great. I'm still probably going to go and see it. But, yeah, that was... I mean, I guess it might not be a finished shot. But yeah, at the same possible. time, why include a finished, a not finished shot in the trailer? Because it's a trailer. Yeah, but you generally try and put your your strong foot forward with a trailer. Yeah, they probably. I mean, if it is an unfinished shot, and we don't know if it is, but if it is, they probably wanted to close on a strong image of cliffhanger type tension, and it sounds like they did that, and that might have yeah. been the best possibility they had, and they were like, it's the best shot for the trailer, but it's not polished. Do mm. we put it in? And I, it sounds like he's visible or it's visible for all of about a second. Yeah, it was long enough. <laughs> That's what I'll say. But enough that you're going to make the gamble to say we need the the beat in the trailer and this is the best footage we have for that beat. I guess it did need it did, obviously did need the beat, yeah, but at the same time, I mean, I suppose it doesn't make sense to obviously hide the alien. I get that. We obviously know what the alien looks like. We it's not like a big monster reveal anymore. It's not your jaws coming out of the water shot because we no, know. I think it still makes sense to not show the alien too much. Yeah. I still think that's the strength of the first movie and the third movie. Definitely. Yes. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. I completely agree there. Um, I and don't know. The weakness I don't... of the second. <laughs> well, I still really like aliens. Um... Oh no! Don't get me wrong. I I don't dislike the film. It's just that the uh, the weak point from being an alien film in the second, is turning them into a horde. Yes. Yeah, I, I agree. The, the theme of Alien and Alien 3 is one alien is a threat to all life. Yes. The theme of aliens is a hundred or so aliens, as long as you've got enough pulse guns. Yes. And that is a, a definite um, a definite theme that is repeated in what we're talking about tonight. Because speaking of aliens... yes tonight we're going to be talking about new who as it has come to be known the reboot of doctor who that started 2005 2005 so let's start at the beginning with season 27 yes season 27 (laughs) uh series one for those who are just in for the new who which i totally get that's totally fine it's 2004. I'm going to set the scene, okay? <laughs> I'm a young kid. I have dabbled in Doctor Who. I have been, very much been a fan of uh, Tom Baker's Doctor in particular, uh, along with like uh, peripherally noticing the other Doctors as well, but mainly Tom Baker. Uh, I had... I had flashes of memories from 1996 from that film, um, <laughs> which is legendary and needs to be watched. But um, <coughs> sorry, it's just the way you put that—that that film. <laughs> yes, that film. I mean, it, I think it's fascinating because we see with that film a a new series of Doctor Who that c- 
could have been if it had gone the other way. Um, it was terrible, so it didn't. But essentially, that that film was basically a long pilot for what was going to be a new series of Doctor Who that was going to be collaborated between American, Canadian, and British television companies. Uh, and as such, it fell flat, as we all know. We covered that in the uh, the last episode that we covered Doctor Who, which is old Who, which can be found in an archive of a different podcast. Yeah, um, if you visit the Dangerously Unprepared SoundCloud, you'll find uh, an album there of the entirety of World 1 Stage 1. And in amongst that is our previous discussions of Doctor Who, which took us up to the start of New Who. That's right. And it was uh, actually my my first episode of becoming a regular on this show as well. So it was a, yeah, I thought it was a good episode. It was good fun. Um, and these guys kindly let me talk about something that I could ramble on about. So they've made the same mistake twice. <laughs> so we're going to go. So yeah, 2004. I see a trailer. Christopher Eccleston. Dang, da, dang, dang, da, dang, dang, da, dang, 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 dang. Billy Piper. What? What? <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, I, we only knew Billy Piper from obviously her uh, illustrious music career. Um, yep. I was I knew her because of the song Because We Want To Because We Want To Why do you play your song so loud? Because we want to Because we want to and, sorry. You have nicely captured why I also had doubts uh. Yes, I, I even as a young I was fairly young at the time Like uh, Let's think, 2006 So I was, uh, sorry, 2005 So I was midway through sixth form Um and that's college for American uh, listeners and other people in other countries that don't have six forms. Um, and yeah, I was I was like, oh, OK, fair enough. I thought she was a singer. I didn't think because it just didn't occur to me that this person could actually be an actor as well. To be honest, I'd, I'd heard her output and I didn't think she was a singer. <laughs> oh, bless her. Like, the thing is, she always wanted to act, but got sort of uh, shoved in that direction from, like, the where she actually trained. Uh, I can't remember the name of it now. Uh, but they were like, oh, no, you've got to go into music. Like, And she was like, well, I kind of want to. And all the people that were kind of um, her agents and stuff kind of, like, said, no, you should do this. And as a young, impressionable person coming into the, the scary kind of um, world of show business, she said, yeah, sure, these people clearly know better than I do. Yeah, she did it, and um, she had success. I mean, she she sold a lot of a lot of um, tapes. Yeah, uh, I mean, <laughs> because we want to, as as bad as you made it sound, which is as bad as it is. Let's not forget that was a number one single in this country. <laughs> well, yeah. it genuinely was. She did really well. Like she was set for life just for that that hit. So. Um, I mean, fair play to her. But anyway, we're going to talk about the actual show. So 2005 comes around. Everyone's... Because it was a big thing. Like, Doctor Who was coming back. Uh, Russell T. Davis, a renowned writer at the helm. um, And no one really knew what to expect. Yeah. I, I had very mixed opinions coming into this. Yeah. Uh, because Russell T. Davies... I knew some of his early work... Uh, yeah. Because he he wrote for children's TV he at did. the time when I was watching children's TV, you know. Right. 
uh, in the sort of mid 80s through the early 90s, he was writing stuff that was age appropriate for me. So I was like, well, sure. I mean, I liked a lot of the stuff he wrote then, but he's had a mixed career since. Yeah, I think it's fair to say he has. Like, I won't like, say Queer he's... as Folk was really strong. Yes, Queer as Folk is incredible. Bob and Rose isn't. No. <laughs> <laughs> but one thing that sort of really caught my eye, because as you say, the first thing we knew was Christopher Eccleston and Russell T. Yeah. And a couple of years earlier, or like the year before it was announced, he had done a small thing on ITV uh, called The Second Coming. Oh, yes. Which I thought was really, really good. In it's incredible. He wrote the story of Jesus coming to the north of England in 2003, yeah. made by Christopher Eccleston. Reincarnated, uh, yeah, in the north of England, <laughs> played by Chris Eccleston, and it is great. It is a great bit of drama. It's an incredibly powerful story. Yeah. Uh, up to and including, like, Jesus deciding to prove himself by conducting a miracle, by turning up in the middle of uh, a football stadium and standing in bright sunlight on a really overcast, cloudy day. Yes! So he's on live TV in front of the biggest audience in the world going, yes. yeah, this is real, deal with it. Um, so I was like, well, Chris Freckleston's great. The second coming was really good, so they work really well together. And then mm -hmm. they said Billy Piper, and I was like, okay, right. Um, sure. I mean, I guess we had Buddy Langford. <laughs> yes, so we did have Buddy Langford. Uh, <laughs> let's see how this goes. And I went in slightly trepidatious, if I'm honest. Yeah, so we we had... Yeah, it was mixed mixed feelings. I mean, but at the end of the day, uh, I was I was just super excited for Doctor Who to be coming back. And then it opens with a bang. You've got the traditional but now revamped, fully orchestrated uh, theme of Doctor Who uh, done by Murray Gold now, and it was epic. Like it was such a good way to start. Obviously, straight in. It wasn't like usual Doctor Who sting. They just went straight in with the music. And uh, I was just like, oh, my God. And the first the first episode was called Rose. And it told a story uh, of a character called Rose, played by Billy Piper, who uh, was stuck in a mundane job in the middle of London with uh, a boyfriend that she loves, but generally feels that perhaps he could be making more of an effort. Like, he seems more interested in watching football and hanging out with his mates than really paying any attention to her. She is generally dissatisfied with her life. And one day, she's working in a Harrods-esque shop, very popular, massive uh, shop in the heart of London. And she is left in this shop to lock up. Um, and she is basically putting clothes away. She just works in like a clothing bit of this massive store. And she is tasked with like putting like rubbish into the back, onto pallets and stuff before she goes home. So she's around the back of this shop. And we get this eerie synth music that we kind of recognize from the uh, the old days of Who as your, your character sort of creeps through the darkness and hears a strange sound. And then who should turn up but a classic villain in the Doctor Who mythos? And that is the Autons, now masquerading as uh, shop front dummies. 
Uh, and they begin chasing her, and someone grabs her hand, and it's bloody Christopher Eccleston in, like, uh, a black leather jacket looking hardcore, and he says, run, and we're off. We have a whole episode dedicated to the Doctor explaining who he is for a new audience. We find out that, and this is a really clever decision from Russell T. Davis, that he is now the last of the Time Lords. We don't know why, but for some reason... He is the last of the Time Lords. And, um, yeah, we it's just an explosive beginning. It's a really well-written starting episode. But I, I remember it being very strong, a very strong beginning. What did you think, Simon? Uh, yeah, definitely opened with a punch. Um, like, I got convinced pretty quickly by Billy Piper, to yes. be honest. Uh, the I. doubts went away rapidly. She did a really good job straight away from episode one. Fantastic job. And Christopher Eccleston also persuaded me immediately, but I didn't have any doubts about him. Uh, yeah, seeing the Autons come back was a really strong start, and it sets a tone that they've kept up throughout New Who of yeah. respecting the uh, the history, whilst at the same time, as you say, really changing it. The whole Last of the Time Lords thing was quite odd at the time. I remember perking up my eyebrows and going, what? Yeah. Um, but by the time we got round to the 50th anniversary, whoa, that decision paid off. <laughs> yes, um, definitely it did. And We're a little thing... way out from that at the moment, but we yeah, that, it does pay off. And so, yeah, it was a really strong start. And I'm going to put my cards on the table right now. The first season of New Who mm. might be my favourite season of New Who. Yeah, definitely. That's that is completely valid. It is a strong season. It was the season it needed to bring it back. And you quite rightly say that it, it did that the first episode and a lot of that season in particular really, really showcased how, yeah, sure, Doctor Who has been off our screens for however long it was. Um uh but that doesn't mean to say the universe stopped, which I loved. Like this mm. this stuff has been happening whilst he's been away it's explained that he oh, it's sort of in a meta kind of way that the doctor hasn't been on our screens because he's been away he's been busy he's been doing something nightmarish that is clearly affecting christopher eccleston new who at the is... same time this is th this is a show predicated on time travel and they've done that between episodes mid-season as well yes <laughs> that's very <true. laughs> that so is also very true and do that yeah, definitely. Um, and this is another strong thing about uh, the, the, about New Who, I find, is that if you look at all the New Who Doctors, they have kind of like a character sort of... I, say, I don't want to say default because it sounds dismissive, but they have like something that grounds each and every one of them. And I think more than ever, Christopher Eccleston's... If, it, if he had a watchword, it was Survivor. Like it was... Um, Almost on the level of PTSD, like yeah, he... I, I would have gone with the word veteran. Oh yes, yes, that's a good one too. Like yeah. this is he is home from war, which again we'll we'll get to. Yeah, uh, and like you say, PTSD. There is definitely that in there. I mean, there's a reason his first word is run. It's very <laughs> yes. good advice in the universe he occupies. <laughs> it is, yeah, definitely, um, and. Yes, he's 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 obviously learned the hard way. Obviously, he always kind of did a lot of running in old who. He's like that's kind of like his default thing to do. But 
yes, that is a very good way of looking at it. I mean, we don't have time to go through, obviously, every single episode of... Uh, no, absolutely not. <laughs> but to, to talk about season one as an overarching story, we had some excellent um, uh, stories that happened throughout and some excellent characters that sort of uh, that got their chance to shine. I mean, uh, we had... Uh, I mean, this is obviously later on, but we had Captain Jack Harkness, uh, make his first appearance, uh, a very important character in terms of um, uh, how to describe it. Good old character. What he stands for, uh, and someone with a very, very fluid sexuality as well, that isn't hidden at all. Like, and it, which I think is the strength of New Here in a way. Like that, that has always been. Captain Jack turned up later, but arguably he's in episode two. Episode two. Oh End yes, he is in episode two. You are right. Yes, I forgot about that. Is he? <laughs> As the face of Bo, yes. Oh well, yeah, yeah. Hmm. Yes, it is very much. Uh, I say implied. It is basically slapped across your face as a viewer that he is the face of Bo, and the face of Bo has one of the best. Um. The face kind of, of Bo, for listeners unfamiliar, is a giant face in a tank. Yes. It's but it's just... said to be incredibly old, incredibly wise, and incredibly sad. Yeah. And he has a great... Um, he's responsible for one of the great cliffhangers as well in Series 3. But we'll get there. Um, but yeah, so we've, we've got like a, a whole cast of characters that's being introduced to us. We have... Um, like Captain Jack appears in a great two-parter, which is the um, the Empty Child, um, which is still remembered fondly as like one of the best episodes of New Who, arguably of all all of Who, um, where nanobots had basically attempted to uh, repair humans uh, that basically humans that have been uh, basically caught in a, an explosion at the height of the Blitz in London. Um, oh. but they didn't have the blueprint prints right and they basically mommy? are you my mummy they had repaired a whole bunch of evacuees and um, and military police and basically all the people who had been affected by this blast but they had now uh, basically been mutated into these creatures that had World War 2 gas masks fused to their face and such a terrifying image and yes they all repeat are you my mummy there's this one phrase that keeps cycling throughout their consciousness the only thing they can say the only way they can communicate and it's terrifying it, completely it's, terrifying it's legit scary it's one of the things doctor who does so well is to take something quite mundane and make it scary yes that is there and you who has done that for small children statues Shadows. <laughs> I mean, it's it's good at this. Yeah, P- potato men. <laughs> potato men. Uh, potato men. Yes. <laughs> oh dear. I never found the Sontarans scary. I don't think I've ever found them scary. To be no. to be honest, but bless them, they do try. They're funny. Um. So yeah, I mean, is there a particular episode that sticks out for you guys for season one at all? Dalek. 
I was about to say. Uh, and going Without on to the point... doubt, my favourite episode of New Who is Dalek. Yes. That's Speaking a... of casting back to the classics, this yeah. is an episode in which the Doctor discovers Henry Van Staten, a collector of antiquities and oddities, mm-hmm. who has been collecting bits and pieces from all over time and all over the galaxy. He is a human who is aware of the larger world that the Doctor has made humanity aware of. And in his collection, Rose stumbles across his prized possession, a powered-down Dalek. Mm. Now, this episode is special to me because I sort of feel like New Who has broadly done a disservice to Daleks as a villain. Yes. Um, but this episode was spot on. Yeah. This episode was a single... Like what we were saying about Alien. Exactly. You know, saying this exactly. is appropriate. One Dalek is a threat to the planet, but apparently a million Daleks can be solved in half an hour. Yes. Um, (laughs) This single Dalek story is so powerful, although it does lead to hilarity in later seasons, because one of the key visuals of this episode is Billy Piper making eye contact with a Dalek, looking it straight in the eye stalk. Now, Billy Piper is not a tall woman. Yes. (laughs) So they designed the new Daleks to have an eyeline the same as Billy Piper's. (laughs) However, Billy Piper did not remain as the companion. Uh, When Matt Smith took over in season five, we of course saw Karen Gillan turn up, who is a lot taller. Yes. Which is why in one of her episodes you can see her leaning on top of a Dalek with her elbow popped on its head because the Dalek is Billy Piper sized. Yes. <laughs> one of the many ways New Who has done a disservice to the Daleks. Yeah, <laughs> and hilarious. you you have covered it, but I mean at the same time, it, the fact that they're they're smaller, like than you know your average height kind of uh, person, like. I don't know. It just makes them seem angrier. Do you know what I mean? Them looking up that at you and, and shouting. Um, yeah, such a great episode, and um, it's that it's that phrase where we we finally find out what happened to the Time Lords in Dalek, and uh, the Doctor reveals the fact that whilst he was away, the last great Time War was ripping time and space apart, with the Doctor at the centre of it, and. Uh, <laughs> The da- he is basically he basically uncharacteristically to the doctor that we are kind of getting to know again is basically just saying we need to kill it we need to kill it like I want to kill it and it's like oh my god he he this this man of peace this man who fights violence with science and clever thinking is you say that but that's actually a perfect carryover from Sylvester McCoy's doctor that's actually very true that's true. Who like grabs all the explosives Ace has and uses yes. it to blow up Daleks on first sight? Like, That's true. Yeah. That's true. It, it's kind of continuing on that character. Yeah. Okay. For the Daleks, then, but for everything else, he generally tries his best to sort of save them. But the yes. Daleks, he has a very special, violent element uh, that he keeps aside for them. But that has its own name: the oncoming storm. Yes. Yes, they are scared of him as he is scared of them because he's seen what they can do all too many times. And he's there 
raging at this Dalek saying, why don't you just shut down? Why don't you just sink back into the pit that whence you came from? Why don't you just go and die? And then the Dalek silent, is silent for a bit and then responds by saying, you would make a good Dalek. And it's just the realisation in his eyes that yes, yes, he would make a good Dalek for all the hate that he has for this vile machine and its contents. Um, yeah, really, really powerful, powerful episode. Um, that actually makes you feel for the Dalek as well. Like yeah. it's not just uh, a two side, a two D villain. This this Dalek is a very well rounded character in that episode, which is amazing. A brilliant feat of writing, in particular. I'll be honest; it has its down downsides as well as a season. Uh, I'm specifically thinking of World War Three and Boomtown. Ah, oh, see, I I I kind of liked World War Three at the time because I just liked I don't know I just thought oh, that's cool that um they've had the guts to blow up Number Ten. Do you know what I mean? I liked that, but it was just I the Slitheen. They yeah, were they weren't yeah. great. They were far great. too much a product of Russell T Davis's time writing children's television. I think yes, farting big green aliens. Yeah. Yeah, like I, the concept of an alien hiding inside a human body and unzipping itself on paper is excellent. But I think the execution, because it was early on, because the CG was not great, let's face it. Um, well, you don't watch Doctor Who for CG, though, I will add. But, no, um, that is very Or effects in the <laughs> yeah, yeah, basically so. Um, which is why a lot of the episodes that don't rely on that are probably the best. Um but uh, yeah, that wasn't so great. Boomtown was a talky episode, wasn't it? That's when they caught up with one of the Slitheen war criminals and had dinner with her in Cardiff. Because <laughs> <laughs> it was, they have this thing where, uh, and I don't know if they still do it now, there is one episode per season where they would have to basically make something without much of a budget. And that was one of them. And sometimes they had to make an episode, especially throughout Tenant's tenure, without really the Doctor being in it that much. Um, which was good and bad, and it resulted in some good episodes like Blink and some not-so-good episodes like um, the one with Peter Kay in it with the... Um, oh, oh, God, God. With, Mark yeah. Warren, with Mark Warren in it. That was another one. Uh, so yeah, it, that was not so good. Yeah, so it you know it could go either way, but Boomtown was one of those, and it had the it had the moral question: Is it right? Is it right for us to send this creature back to her homeland? If we do, she will be executed. If we don't, she is likely to try and kill other people. Uh, she was happy to reduce the earth to molten slag to sell on to the highest bidder. You know, do we? What's the right thing to do? Um, so an interesting moral question, but it just wasn't the strongest episode, admittedly. The other season one episode I really, really rate, one of the reasons I think it's my favourite season, was Father's Day. Yes! It was a perfect little Doctor Who story, in that it is, as you say, not heavily reliant on effects, and it is very much about the core conceit, the time travel, and it answers a big question the audience has probably got by now, like, you're halfway into the first season of New Who, you've got a new audience, and people are probably asking themselves, if you can travel in time, why don't you just make sure nothing bad ever happened? Yeah. And so Billy Piper, who it was established straight away, uh, has a single mother. 
her father died some years ago, she convinces the doctor to take her back to witness the event. Yeah. And against all his warnings of non-interference, she saves her father's life and deals with the consequences. This is the time we're introduced to the concept that there, there are creatures out there that search for these time paradoxes and focus in on them. It is where they find their prey and the reapers turn up and yes. they are scary fuckers. Reapers are horrifying and um, obviously there's a lot... It's in time, isn't it? It is, yeah. yeah. And uh, careful to say that the Reapers are only one problem that can happen as well. Like, that's the thing. There's a myriad of different things that can happen yep. if you mess with time in Doctor Who. They just happen to be one of them, and they happen to be one of the nastiest. Um, swooping out of rips in reality to, like, scoop people up and make it so... It's not so they never existed. They just... I can't remember what they do to them exactly. I don't know if they just outright kill them or just... Blink them out of existence? I can't remember, but they were terrifying. They're sort of winged think, bat creatures. Don't they put them back into the situation that they should have left in? Yeah, they're basically trying to fill the gap. They're trying to, like, mend the break, as it were. Yeah, yeah. Reapers are there to literally take away the people who shouldn't be alive. So if you change time to save someone, the Reapers take them. Yeah. And in Doctor Who Mythos, this is, you know, the Grim Reaper. This is where it all comes from. If you cheat death, the Reaper will get you, all of this. Yeah. Yeah, that was a really good one. And it it was a really good lesson for for the Companion. Because, I mean, as we stated in the, uh, the last Doctor Who episode, the Companion is there uh, to answer questions the audience have, obviously. Um, but also to um, address uh, those kind of issues. Um, and it allowed to go allowed us to go this one step further on Rose's journey. And that is that at the end of the day, everything isn't going to be okay. Sometimes, you know, there's a joke that goes, you know, the doctor always saves the day, but sometimes, sometimes he can't, sometimes he doesn't. And this is one such occasion. Um, this, I will add, gets invalidated later on down the line. Yes. <laughs> kind of invalidated, kind of. It's a bit cheaty, and again, it's Rusty Davis did like his um, Deus Ex Machina. Like he did like his random things, like popping out of the woodwork to solve situations sometimes. Um, but yeah, I mean, season one incredibly strong, and it ends. It's funny you should mention Deus Ex Machina talking about how season one ends. Yes, <laughs> yeah, yes, that is that is true. <laughs> <laughs> like, if Russell T. Davis hadn't ended every single season of Doctor Who he wrote with a Deus Ex Machina, he does. Yeah. I would look back more fondly on the Bad Wolf ending. Oh. Yeah. As the first season ending, it was great. The fact that you could look back and see these words Bad Wolf popping up throughout, foreshadowing this event. Mm. Uh, where, for listeners who aren't aware of how season one ends, where Billy Piper basically looks into the heart of the TARDIS and becomes a time goddess, briefly. Yeah. The bad wolf. Um, and saves the day in literal deus ex machina. Uh, it would have been amazing had we not then had Doomsday, uh, <laughs> and had we not had The Sound of Drums and Last of the Time Lords, mm. had we not had Journey's End, and basically had the gimmick not been repeated four years in a row. Yes. Yes, it was repeated 
to varying different effects and hand waving. <laughs> You're absolutely yeah. correct. Um, because, uh, like, I, I mean, yeah, I was always, I was always grateful for Russell T. Davis. He wrote some great episodes and he brought it back. But yeah, like, wow, he liked, he liked beating that dead horse. Put it that way. Um, yeah, yeah, he did. <laughs> but in a confrontation that involved Jack uh, Harkness first being killed and then being sent back in time resurrected with all sorts of funny things happening to him, which we'll go into later. Um, there, uh, there came the point where Rose had basically disintegrated the Dalek threat, but she was now in danger of being utterly destroyed by the amount of energy pouring through a human body. You know, it just can't happen. And the doctor looks on in horror and uh, realizes that basically the only way to save her is to kiss her. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, no, it's not. He, he does like a, a, an energy sort of transfer thing, and he basically draws all of that, um, all of that power into himself to save Rose, but will uh, unfortunately cost him his regeneration, cost him his life. Because it's still fatal, but of course the Doctor has less, less concern for fatal injury than yes. most mortals. Yeah. And it uh, and it's so it's so sad but so wonderful at the same time. Like he's there and he says, uh I, I just need to let you know, Rose, I'm gonna change and uh you know, I might be very different. And he goes on to say, Can you imagine if I come back as a dog but without a nose? How how weird would that be? And um uh all these different things that he says, um Rose, you were fantastic. And you know what? So was I. And because his sort of watchword was fantastic, you know, he'd always say fantastic. Um, and then the regeneration and energy sort of overwhelms him and he, he begins to change. And suddenly we are greeted to the uh, the bright eyed, fresh from the hit uh, short series Casanova. Uh, the bright eyed. Also by Rusty Davis. Also, oh, yeah. also very good. Um, we have David Tennant. Uh, arguably one of the most popular doctors ever. And oh yes, oh, there are so many Rose and Tennant fans, and wow, oh, we'll get onto this. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, and with a with a a, a bright eyed smile, he because they've been discussing going to the planet Barcelona, where there are a bunch of dogs with no noses. Uh, he goes Barcelona, bam, hits the switch, and off we go. We're into the Tennant era. Uh, his first episode being the Christmas Invasion, where he defeats the Sycorax with naught but a tangerine and a sword. Um, and it's interesting to know that David Tennant had actually been cast before any of us even saw the first episode of season one. Because Eccleston's decision to quit came very, very early. Yes, it did, didn't it? Well, they were looking by then anyway. They announced it sort of like before the ending two-parter, didn't they? Which I thought was a shame. They They tried to keep it secret, apparently, but then it leaked. Which is another problem for Doctor Who. They just can't keep oh, secrets. Yeah. They cannot keep secrets to save their own life. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So yeah. We, we found out that, oh, right, we're getting a new Doctor, and he's this young dude, this weirdo, this, you know, he looks a bit, he looks fine. Yeah. Yeah. And he proves to be this highly charismatic, adventurous, um, childlike, wonder filled individual at first which is what i like about tenon's doctor 
Yeah. We say that perhaps uh, survivor or veteran is Christopher Eccleston's kind of focus point. Well, David Tennant's was um, the reborn hero, I think, in a way. He was able yeah, to yeah. L- let go of a lot, of, a lot of the stuff that Christopher Eccleston had weighing him down, but still had kind of like almost a guilty resentment for feeling that way sometimes, which I really liked about him. See, again, if I had to pick one word for, for Tenant's Doctor, it would end up being denial. Yes, denial. Like, he does have this wonderful sense of curiosity, fascination, and wanderlust, but it is, as we will learn as New Who goes on, it is the Doctor running from himself, mm. looking for any and everything that could distract him. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You can't yeah. blame him, really. But... Oh, no, no. It <laughs> makes perfect sense. And this is why I love the 50th anniversary episode so very, very Oh, my, yes. Yes. Wow. I saw that in the cinema. Uh, I, I didn't. No, we had a Doctor Who party at a house. I, I dressed up. Yeah, I went to uh, cinema. It was fun. It was great. Uh, yeah, it was great. It was, oh, man, fantastic time. But, um,. Series two comes around, and we with Russell T. Davis, there was kind of like this thing because of it was just coming back. There was kind of like this almost obligation to revisit the the you know the good old days, the the great the great villains of the classic era of Doctor Who, and so, some of the great heroes in this season. That's also very true. That's a great episode. School um, reunion for, yeah. for listeners who aren't familiar was the second episode of the second series. Uh, third, third, and it features not only Elizabeth Sladen, who's Sarah Jane Smith, one of the most famous companions of Doctor Who history, but also one of my personal favourite companions in history, yeah, the definitely. robot dog K Nine. Yes, the tin dog. He's a tin dog. <laughs> um. Yeah, and, and a great episode because once again we, we're still with Rose, and Rose is just getting over the fact that you know the Doctor has changed, um, and for all intents and purposes, she really likes Tennant. I mean, God knows why. Um, <laughs> well, well, there's a there's a whole thing about Russell T Davis and blonde women named Rose. I, I won't go into it, but look up his history. Look at Bob and Rose. Look at. Oh yeah, <laughs> this whole thing about one woman called Rose, and it's weird. But anyway, yes, uh, I will. I'm, I'm glad that we had some seasons before the relationship really started interfering with the storytelling. Let's put it that way. Yeah, in a, yes, kind of. I, I I think I think it's well done in series two. Personally, I think afterwards, then it gets it becomes a problem. Yes. Two is two is good, um, on the whole, but I really, really started to find the focus on their relationship distracting by the end. Like Army of Ghosts and Doomsday should have been the end of it. Yes, it should have been the end of it. No, it wasn't. No, no. If, if If they could have put it to bed, because. I'll, I'll talk about it more in series three, but I think the obsession with the ten rose relationship totally sabotaged Martha as a companion, and 
also led to some really shitty treatment of Donna as a companion. Oh, Donna. So I, 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 I yes, we will get to that with seriously because I have my also I have my contentions with a lot of problems with series three. But anyway, um, yeah, they were they were let's face it very good together they had a really good chemistry it is undeniable to say they they worked well together chemistry between the two undeniable yes Yes. undeniable it 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 could have been kept as a friendship and been just as palpable though yes and and to be fair it kind of was but then you as he went along rose was kind of going more towards the relationship way and he was once again in denial until it was obviously too late um but uh yeah so anyway school reunion we have this this issue addressed to rose which is it isn't gonna last forever uh look i've been there love like uh we were traveling through the stars we were seeing different planets going to different time eras and then he dropped me off and that was it and she's like, yeah, I, you know, I dropped you off in Croydon. And she's like, it wasn't Croydon, it was Aberdeen. <laughs> like, <laughs> that's quite inconvenient, really, isn't it? If you're going to be bit. dropped off anywhere, um, not anything against Aberdeen, it's just quite far away from Croydon. Um, it's very far away. From <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> well, in, 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 in relation to, obviously, all of time and space, it's quite close. But still. Um... In, in terms of... <laughs> The, the galactic and temporal scale of the universe, it's almost a direct hit. In yes. terms of <laughs> rail, it's a nightmare. Yes, it is. And yeah. um, let's face it, like, the Doctor probably thought that that was close enough, you know, considering his perspective on the situation, I guess. The Rose learns that it isn't going to be, you know, it isn't going to last forever, and she's also in denial as well. There is an excellent portrayal of the Krillatane master who is played by Anthony Stewart Head, who I would love to see as a doctor at some point in the future, at some point. And has said today, I think, that he would not be adverse to being the next doctor. Yes, which, um, yeah, I'd be happy with. But, I mean, the thing is, there's been a... a, Well, I think we're going to get to this. We will get to this. We'll get to this. We'll put that on the back burner. Because we have a lot to get through, and we're like an hour and eight minutes in. (laughs) So... Season two is great. We've got some cool ones. We've got some nah, sort of iffy ones. We have a really great one uh, about uh, Man de Pompadour. I really like the girl in the fireplace. Um, it's, uh, it juxtaposes action that takes place uh, upon a broken down ship in the middle of a nebula, uh, and jumping back between there and uh, Renaissance France? Yes. And... It's about uh, essentially working out why these particular villainous uh, machines are hounding the historically famous figure, Madame de Pompadour. Um, and Mickey is brought into the TARDIS crew as well because he's, he's proven himself like he was proved himself in school reunion. Um, and let's think. I, I will say that my favourite, I think my favourite episodes of series two there's got to be the Satan Pit two-parter. Oh my god, I, yes. That was awesome. A problem that they come across in the TARDIS, they land on a... They think it's like an asteroid or a planet. I can't remember which, but... No, it actually is a planet that is inexplicably orbiting a black hole. And it doesn't take a physician to understand 
that that it just isn't possible. So well, that's no, it why it's entirely possible to walk what? a black hole. Really? Yeah. Like like going down a plug hole though. Look at look at Interstellar, the the planet orbiting the black hole in Interstellar. As long as you're outside of the event horizon, you can orbit a black hole. Oh, okay. There you go. Not so impossible. Let's just but... say that the science in Doctor Who is not always the strong point because it is written. It is a fantasy series. I think we established this last yes, time. It is about it a wizard with a magic wand who has magical powers and travels through time and space and solves people's problems. It is loosely described as science fiction, but it is a show about a wizard. And I think I think it could benefit uh, for a bit more science fiction because there are sometimes where yes. there are times where it does sort of loosely use a scientific principle and it works amazingly like quantum mechanics and statues for instance but um <laughs> there's so for, okay perhaps they're too close for it to be feasible for it to be orbiting a black hole but it turns out that an ancient civilization that existed before the Time Lords, before the Osirens even, if you're going deep cuts with Pyramids of Mars, like, um, there was this race of beings that sealed away this ancient evil that uh, sought to uh, unmake the entire universe with its dread power. Um, and they accidentally let it go <laughs> in that episode. Uh, and it begins possessing people who start... Uh, appearing with strange satanic glyphs daubed upon their skin, and the uh, the once docile alien race known as the Ood, now uh, susceptible and basically the uh, the army, as it were, of this terrifying being. And whilst Rose and this um, uh, crew of uh, of um, scientists and explorers are desperately trying a way to solve this, uh, Tenant and one of the crew descend down into the pit uh to try and i can't remember why they go down i think he goes down to try and confront it um but it addresses the really cool thing of what is that what does the doctor believe you know he believes obviously in time and space and uh science though obviously that it's a bit loosey-goosey with the science but what is his faith what does he believe in and that was a i really like that episode um a, a really great two-parter with gabriel wolf who famously also voiced Sutek in Pyramids of Mars, coming back to play um, this satanic monster. So he had an excellent voice to go with him as well. Um, I thought that was probably the strongest episode of Series 2, and arguably of all of Tenant's tenure. One of them, anyway. Yeah, I'm, I think it's got competition for the strongest of his run, but it's it's hard to argue with it being the strongest of Season 2. Yeah. Although, whilst I wouldn't say in any way that it's as good, I am a fan of New Earth, the first episode. Oh, I love just, New Earth. Just because of the sequence where Billy Piper, who had been promised a chance in season two to do some comedy, gets to totally send herself up. Yes. And Cassandra, a character introduced in season one as the last human, simply a bit of skin stretched on a taut frame that still somehow centralizes me. Uh, manages to possess. <laughs> <laughs> Billy Piper's body, and then give a haughty and uh, unflattering <coughs> assessment of her new body. Yes, that is very funny, and also how oh my God, am I a chav? Yes, I'm a chav. And um, also, it's tenants look at her because usually 
Rose is the compassionate one. When you have you have the shtick in Doctor Who where someone comes along and they sort of explain their problem. Oh yeah, we've been suffering under this evil regime for some time, or whatever. And that they that's when the companion usually so shows a bit of uh, compassion. But in this situation, because she's possessed by a very very vain, horrible person. She is completely dismissive of all these ill, dying, diseased people in this hospital, and it's the funniest thing in the world. <laughs> Imagining a doctor with this horrendous person as his companion. Um, which is an interesting take. <laughs> for an episode, at least. And it yeah, is also an interesting story, this concept of humans being cloned as uh, <laughs> disease farms so that cures can be investigated. It's... Yeah. It's one of the, the little moral question episodes they love to do. Mm. Yeah, that's a good point, actually. That, it did actually have a very, very firm moral question in that. Yes. And um, introduced us to the cat nurses. Yes. Was that, Who I like. Was that the same one where they had the, uh, the, the, the biggest traffic jam in the universe? That's the same world, yeah. New, yeah. new, 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 uh, Earth. Yes. Yeah. Yes, it comes uh, up in... <laughs> In Gridlock, same planet. That's it, Gridlock, yeah. Where in both episodes, once again, we are introduced to the face of both. Because in New Earth, in New Earth, uh, it's teased and they say one day the face of Bo will impart his dying words, a secret that no one knows to uh, a mysterious traveler who wanders the universe. And we're like, I wonder who that could be. Um, (laughs) And then, obviously, we find out uh, later in season three what those words are. Um, but yeah, we have Doomsday Army of Ghosts, uh, where uh, the Cybermen and the Daleks have, for all of the, the the bad points of like the fact that you know there's the Deus Ex Machina, we do have a like a bitch fight between a bunch of Daleks and the Cybermen, and that is a highlight. Um, <laughs> Let me see. What is it he says? Um, um, Daleks have no concept of elegance. This is obvious. <laughs> like that kind of thing. And the Daleks say... Also the one of, you believe you could defeat the Cybermen with three Daleks. No, we could defeat the Cybermen with one Dalek. Yes. Yeah, yeah. You are superior in only one respect. What is that? You are better at dying. <laughs> like, seriously, it's the best. Uh, it's the best battle rap of all time. It's. Uh, <laughs> I love the. Um, we're supposed to try to uh, get the names for each other. Yes. Yes. Identify yourself. Yes, you will identify yourself. Daleks do not identify themselves. You have identified as Dalek. <laughs> and let's not forget. This is not war. This is pest control. <laughs> <laughs> Bless the Daleks. You got and then there's a day of sex machina and all of the Cybermen and all of the Daleks are handily beaten. Get pulled into a Time Lord uh, prison ship, essentially. Yeah, yes, they the pull inside. a lever. Yes, they pull a, they pull a lever, which also um, is drawing both it and anything with void stuff, which is why Tennant is famous for wearing his old school 3D glasses because that's how that, that apparently helps him see void stuff. Um, that's uh, that is any if it's on any of one, if anyone's gone through the void, which they did in a Cyberman episode previously in a different dimension, you will also get pulled into the void. That's just the way it is. And um, 
Rose and the Doctor are hanging on for dear life uh, as everything, the Daleks, the Cybermen, the big ship, I say the big ship is quite small, uh, gets pulled into this into this void. And sadly, one of the levers gets disrupted and Rose uh, heroically uh, lets go to try and activate it again, which it succeeds in doing, but in doing so also gets pulled through into the void, but is saved at the last minute by an alternate version of her father my goodness uh <laughs> and they they are able to get into the other dimension rather than being sucked into the void which is a space between dimensions and it is sealed up and the doctor and rose are separated for a bit <laughs> there is a really beautiful and i will like despite this consequences um Despite that episode, there is a beautiful and wonderfully acted scene between David Tennant and Rose uh, and Billy Piper on Bad Wolf Bay on a beach uh, where they have to say goodbye. And it is wonderfully acted. And despite the fact that, yes, the relationship might have started getting in the way at that point, it is still very powerful where the doctor is about to say something and then the power uh, runs out that was enabling them to have this communication across the dimensions and is uh it's cut off and that's it so yeah bless my god we're only on series two i know <laughs> but um, season two probably my least favorite season of new who uh definitely not mine definitely it has not mine a couple of really good episodes i'll admit but I just I was so tired of the ten rows thing by the end that I I agree the scene in Bad Wolf Bay the emotional farewell is beautifully acted wonderfully performed brilliantly presented but inside I was just going yes thank God they're actually going um, <laughs> <laughs> and I just there are more strong episodes in every other season for me. Mm. I one. I happen to think that three is the weakest. Really? Because yeah. three, it has a couple of clunkers. And yeah. Let's talk about three. It's next up. It yeah. has a couple of clunkers. Specifically, the Dalek two-parter is bad. Yeah, really bad. It's really bad. <laughs> the Daleks trying to become make a human Dalek, which is against everything they've ever said ever. Yep. Yep. So and... let's just forget about that. Yes, it's it's pig monsters, human Daleks. It's all that that whole thing. Like I said, this show does a disservice to the Daleks. It's terrible. Oh, there was one really cool thing about that episode, I will say. And I, I don't know what it is, but there are two doctors that are really, really good at dramatically climbing up things. One is Tom Baker. Two is David Tennant. David Tennant climbing <laughs> up the mast of the Empire State Building amidst like, a lightning storm is epic and i loved it because it was just cool but that's it that's the only thing i liked about it <laughs> that's fair enough um and i'm also not a huge fan of the final two-parter but i don't dreadful. like the two-parters of most of rtd's shows. dreadful uh, dreadful, so dreadful. I'll ignore them that's why but, I, yeah go ahead. sorry go ahead smith and jones super strong yeah that was good jadoon on the moon fantastic Jadoon on the moon yeah i thought gridlock was a lovely one-set piece. I yep. thought it was a really nice, self-contained 
episode. Very yep. nice. Bartle uh, O'Hannon uh, from Father Ted fame yep. as a cat. That's just spot on. Spot on. I quite liked the Lazarus experiment. <laughs> it's not um, great, but I like it. It's not great. And once However, again, it's the effects, isn't it? Really? Yeah. Let, 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 really let it down. But yeah. Then you get in a run. 42, Human Nature, Family of Blood, and Blink. See, those... Oh, you mentioned there's not three. a bad episode in there. 42, I do not like. I love 42. That's Which fair. 42 I thought... Uh, 42 is the um, the solar spaceship, 42 minutes to save it. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and don't get me wrong, I love the conceit of 42 that it's given. He's like, yeah, that's it. It's presented right at the beginning, before even the sting, I think... Doctor, yeah, 42 minutes to save the ship from crashing into this sun. Go. I love it. But I'm afraid to say that as with most of these episodes, are let down, in my opinion, by Martha Jones. I cannot stand Martha Jones. <laughs> I think Freema Ajiman, bless her, I'm sure, and other stuff, she is great. But I felt that her performances were really bad. Like... Really bad, and I don't say that often. And I will say that I think her performances, for the work she was given to do, were phenomenal. But the character she was given was the woman who would walk around behind the doctor for the doctor to look at and go, You're not Rose. And (laughs) the whole of her characterization throughout season three is the doctor not really wanting her to be there and wishing she was someone else. And she got shafted by the script time and time again. Yeah, that's true. Because you could have been... I I could see what they were trying to do because obviously Rose was very popular and they didn't want to replace her. So they made a thing of it, didn't they? They were like, oh, look, she and Rose. But at the same time, it then started to make you think, well, why is the Doctor even bothering? Like, what? (laughs) Like, and 42 for one... Is, is an instance that really annoys me. There's a bit where Martha gets sealed into an evacuation pod and is jettisoned towards the sun, okay? And she is there for what seems like 10 minutes tapping on the glass, like as if it's <laughs> like going to help in some way. I know it's just like a little moment in the, in, in this, in, in the entirety of the episode. I know it's not important, but it was annoying. I was like... Why are you just helplessly tapping away at the glass? Why aren't you trying to work to find a solution? And I know that's the script. I understand that, Simon. I'm completely on board with what you're saying about that. If she had been given better material, then I could be proven completely wrong. As you say, human nature, family of blood, blink, all great scripts that include her, uh, and she doesn't ruin them, put it that way. So maybe if there was more like that, then... I would be a more on board with her, but I can't look past it. And that's probably my own failings, I suppose. Um, that You did mention my favourite three episodes of, of Series 3. They do have, it does have uh, Human Nature, which is um, actually adapted from a Doctor Who novel that was written in the time where Doctor Who was off air. It was actually acknowledging sort of, um, that story and bring it into the canon, which I adored. Uh, originally, a Sylvester McCoy story where the Doctor having to try and escape uh, these aliens that want to steal his regeneration energy as an act of mercy decides to hide rather than defeat them. And because he doesn't want to have to 
you know, deal with them in another way. So he tries to hide. And it brings up this conceit of the fob watch, where a Time oh, Lord, yeah. using a, a, a something arc, I can't remember the name of it, basically conceal their Time Lord essence regeneration energy into this fob watch to make them biologically seem, for all intents and purposes, human. But with that goes his memories. So there is this man, uh, 1913, a year before the First World War, in a prep school who is teaching children how to become soldiers before the explosion of World War One begins. And it's a gripping two-parter. Yep, I loved it. And it's like, for me, Smith and Jones and Gridlock, and yeah, even Shakespeare Code up at the front. Yeah. And then that block of 42, Human Nature, Family of Blood, Blink, and to an extent, Utopia. Utopia was good. Yeah, it just... Yeah, the two two-parters were bad. Everything else in that series was good. I wasn't a fan of With Shakespeare. The possible Code. argument of Lazarus Experiment. I Lazarus Experiment. That is really good. <laughs> I didn't. I, I wasn't such a fan of. I mean, Jadoon on the Moon was was a good opener, but I wouldn't say it alone. I would re- I would state it as being like great. Um, Certainly not on the on par with the other season openers, anyway. With Rose and New Earth, anyway. But that's my no. But when you look back at season two, I really don't like Army of Ghosts or Doomsday. I think Fair. Fear Her is weak. That's I think Love and bad. Monsters is the weakest episode of New Who. Yes. I yes. think Idiot's Lantern is weak. Oh, I quite I think like Rise of the Cybermen and Age of the Steel are okay. They're quite good, yeah. I think Tooth and Claw is. Okay. I liked Tooth and Claw. I really liked Tooth and Claw because of the phrase, and it makes no sense whatsoever, but it's just the way Tenet delivers it. They're planning to destroy the werewolf by shining moonlight at it, and it's like, what? And Rose even says, um, how are we going to stop a werewolf with moonlight? That's what created it. And the doctor says, you're 17% water. You can still drown. And it's like, what? <laughs> that's I love that line is great. That but line like, is great. But it's a good line. And I was like, it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. But I still I still loved it. I was like, that's that's all you need. That's all you need. Of course, so we're going to drown the werewolf in moonlight. Um <laughs> So yeah, good stuff. And obviously that was the creation of Torchwood, which we won't it go does into. It have love and monsters. It has love and monsters, yeah, bless. Um, season two, season three does not have love and monsters. You are Therefore, correct. It's instantly a step above. You are, I, I, you are correct in saying, I, I had forgotten about Utopia, which is pretty good. I had forgotten about uh, Gridlock, which is also pretty good. So yeah, I would say it's on a par for me now looking back. That's fair. I think that's fair. I... It might be on a par for me as well if season two hadn't been so hung up on the <laughs> relationship. And season three hadn't been so undercut by the Rose Tyler relationship. Yeah. And then sour taste in my mouth for season two. The the thing that I that I, I find unforgivable about series three in general though was because of the fact we'd long been told that um, by the face of Bo had turned around early in season three and said to the doctor those favourite words. You are not alone. Not alone. And it was like, oh my god! And it all clicked into place. And they were like, they're going to, they're gonna. There's a time lord. There's a time lord somewhere. What the hell? There's going to be a time lord. Who could it possibly be? Um, <laughs> now, this is another tradition of New Who. Mm-hmm. You, you instantly start going, is it the Rani? Is it Omega? No, it's, <laughs> obviously it's 
the master. Yeah. <laughs> That's what do you, I don't know whether you remember this, but like for ages and ages and ages, like, and this was more throughout the Moffat era, really. They kept like teasing like the different villains and things like that. And every season, without fail, I would be excitedly rubbing my hands together, saying, "Yes, it's the Rani, it's Omega, it's Morbius, it's the Master." Well, I was joining it? in at one point. <laughs> yeah. I absolutely believed that Rory was the Rani. You know. Yeah. <laughs> oh that would have been good um but no yeah it was i I don't go wrong i love the master and i was so excited for the master to be coming back but the execution of utopia being this a really great reveal of uh, a brilliant actor Derek jacoby uh revealed to be the master who had used a similar fob watch displayed in family of blood to hide his identity, to hide the fact he's a Time Lord, to escape the Time War. Excellent, absolutely perfect reveal. Him saying, I am the master before murdering um, uh, that, that his, his basically lifelong friend at that point with that regeneration. And um, the excellent cliffhanger of him being injured and regenerating into John Sim, an actor I completely adore, and then abandoning them at the end of the universe, without a TARDIS, uh, with that reveal, was absolutely fantastic. And I was so pumped to go into the final two-parter, the Doctor versus the Master, finally after all these years. Then the Doctor gets turned into Dobby the House Elf, the end. <laughs> yeah, that was... Uh, <laughs> yes. It was Dr. Dobby is oh. so bad. So bad. Well, Dobby. It's so bad, and like Tinkerbell Dobby Jesus, as they correct me. <laughs> That's correct because of the uh, the reincarnation, the yes. sort of uh, yeah, and the doctor. And if you believe in the doctor, clap your hands. Yeah, essentially. <laughs> That's essentially what it is. Oh man, I mean, I did love after he'd come back and he was the doctor again, and it was them confronting each other, like for like five minutes on screen that was really cool because then you had the bit where the the doctor said i know you master and one of the things you would never do is kill yourself and he hands over the detonator for the world ending thing that he had just prepared and they're back on the thing they've reversed time deus ex machina it's a russell t davis finale everything's back to normal apart from Oddly enough, they they actually make a point of saying the only thing that didn't get fixed was the assassination of the American president. I was like, oh, okay, that's a bit <laughs> harsh, but fair enough. There's just only one person that's over that who now, to everyone else's mind, inexplicably disappears and who's never addressed ever again. But never mind. Um, and then the master gets shot. And I was like, oh, my God. And it's a beautiful moment. Like, once again, like a a tiny diamond of wonderful excellence amidst the shit. (laughs) And um, and the, the, the doctor's cradling him saying, look, come on, we've been through this a thousand times. You and me, we're the last two. We're the only ones. Regenerate. And he's just like, no. I win. <laughs> He's like, he, re- he says, I refuse. You can't, you can't make me re- regenerate. Screw you. I'm, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna die. And he dies. And it's like, oh. And I, yeah, I was like, wow, that's amazing. That's really cool. And you have this. Yeah, it was a little bit of gold in a terrible storyline. Yes. The, the fact that the master was like, no, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna regenerate. I don't need to. 
you can now live your life on your own and go back to the tortured existence you've been denying all these years, Doctor. Like, and it was it was just a really mean, beautiful way for the Master to go out in that season. And then they tease the fact that there's a ring when uh, the Doctor burns the Master Return of the Jedi style, which was also quite cool. Um, and yeah, there's a weird ring. And we dropped. move into season four. <laughs> we move into season four, which, um, okay, uh, there's some there's some weak ones here too. There are. I mean, there's weak ones in every series. Yeah. Uh, fun fact about season four: I didn't watch it when it aired. All right. I really dislike Catherine Tate's comedy work. Yeah, fair enough. Like, yeah. I, I just Best don't. Thing. I don't think it's good. No, I've I don't never think so either. It. No. So I had no faith in her as a performer. That was, that was my dad's reaction when because he, he was watching New Who when it was first aired. Yeah, and as and he found out that Catherine Tate was going to be the next companion, he was like, "I'm out." Yes, and the Runaway Bride was uh, the special the previous year. The Christmas. Oh yes, she appeared in that. Yes, and that had played much closer to her comedy than her role in season four. Mm. And I thought, if that's the companion for a whole season. <laughs> I'm done, and yeah. I walked away. But revisiting it much, much later, mm. um, because there's some important episodes in here. There were very important episodes. So I, I needed to go back, if only for Silence in the Library and Forest of the Dead. Yes. Oh my god, but, that's... Yeah. But revisiting, what I found is Catherine Tate is a phenomenal actress when she's not being comedic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She's and great. she managed to make season four my favourite of the tenant runs in some ways. She's my wow. favourite tenant companion. Yeah. Because she's the only companion in, in New Who who has just got no bollocks to that. That's a terrible idea. I'm going to sunbathe. You go and get in trouble. Yes. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> which is yeah. amazing. Uh, um, I mean... It's, it's, a li- it's one of the lines from it. It's like, you keep your slimy tentacles off me, buster. <laughs> and I thought... It's a great. It's a. I think. Yeah. It's a pretty. It's a pretty good season. Like, like with what we said before. There's good and bad. We start off with. Uh, I know we're ignoring the Christmas special at this point, but like we we've had like previously we had Voyage of the Damned where Kylie Minogue was like a guest companion. Randomly. Kylie Minogue on Space Titanic. There you yeah. go. That's all you need to know about that. That's one. all you need to know. We start with Partners in Crime, which is essentially like a big allegory for like the. Um, uh, uh, like the diet industry, almost. Yes. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. yeah. And you have these little. Uh, and I was really worried about this. It, I, I, I wasn't such a fan of this one. Once again, includes a really cool moment of David Tennant's doctor scaling a building. Really <laughs> cool. I don't know why. I just think it's wicked. Like there's a bit <laughs> where they're hanging off like this window cleaner sort of um, uh, lift. And this agent who has been tasked with raising all these adipose out of human fat has a sonic device and is trying to murder both the Doctor and Donna by destroying this thing whilst they're on it. So they drop off this skyscraper and fall to their deaths. And the Doctor does this really cool thing. I like, if if any of them, David Tennant is like the action hero Doctor in a weird way. Like, he points his sonic screwdriver, which knocks her sonic device out of her hand. It falls through the air. He catches it, puts it in his teeth, and begins climbing up. And I'm like, oh my god, this is just so cool. 
the rest of the episode I could lose. But <laughs> but that bit it also contains a line that to this day makes me furious, which is when Miss Foster, the villain, says, "Let's find out what happens when two identical sonic devices interact, and they're clearly not identical. They look different." Yes. Yeah. Yeah, a tenant just goes, let's find out, and just jams them together, doesn't he? Um, but yeah, it's... Um, yeah, that was weird. A sonic pen. Come on. However, Fires of Pompeii follows. Oh my god. Oh. And damn, is that, one, really good. Really good. And two, kind of important for the future of Doctor Who. Very <laughs> important for the future of Doctor Who. We see both Peter Capaldi and Karen Gillan. And Karen Gillan, yes. For the first time. Um, Fires of Pompeii is excellent. It is supremely good. Like the 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 stinger. Like to me, like you know, a Doctor Who is episode is going to be good from the sting, in my opinion. And the fact is that they've gone because they are hoping to go and look at uh, ancient Rome, and they get out and they're walking around. And uh, uh, Donna's like, "Aren't there supposed to be like the seven hills of Rome? There only appears to be one really big one." And Tennant looks and he goes oh my god like <laughs> and they realize where they are and he goes it's pompeii and it's volcano day <laughs> like that i was like oh my god once again doctor who on a time limit essentially like they've already got a certain amount of time to deal with the problem that all the doctor wants to do is run away he doesn't want to deal with it he's like i can't fear can't do it and the reasons that we won't go into because i was not explain every episode they end up staying there to the point where Pompeii is actually exploding. And they're up against the Pyroviles, which I thought were a really neat villain, actually, like magma monsters um, that are hoping to basically explode. Their plan is to basically make the uh, volcanic eruption enough that it basically covers the entire world in ash. But the Doctor is only able to prevent it from, you know, becoming just the normal Pompeii explosion, you know, what actually happened. Like, he can't interfere, but he can stop it from wiping out the whole world. Um, yes. And it's great. They have that moment in the volcano where they think they're going to die. Like, it's it's a truly powerful, moving episode. And Donna is basically spending this whole time trying to convince the Doctor to, to at least save someone. And they happen to choose Peter Capaldi's family. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Which is excellent. Peter Capaldi shows up and is excellent in a kind of comic role. Um, of an, What is he? He's a, um, he's a marble. He's a marble merchant, isn't he? And like he buys the TARDIS off someone because he thinks it's like modern art, which I loved. Um yeah, oh, that's great. And you've got that image of Tennant coming back and reaching through the ash, saying, come with me. Like, really powerful stuff. But what is the significance of uh, them seeing Capaldi there? How does that affect the future? Well, it's, it's also worth uh, mentioning, considering how it affects the future, mm -hmm. that uh, Capaldi's character names Gallifrey. Yes, he does. He yes, is, in he fact, does. psychic and knows the name Gallifrey. So when you see Capaldi in his first episode looking at his reflection saying, whose face is this? Who frowned these frowns? 
it's it's this implication that Lucius Petrus's psychic link is still there in his mind that he. Oh no! It was it was his daughter, wasn't it? Wasn't it his daughter that was having visions? Oh, no, no, yeah, she had all the villains, but it was he who actually named Gallifrey. I'm sure. Oh, okay. Well, maybe I can't. I, it's a bit like, of it was, it was because It's revealed that she's the psychic quite early on. Yeah. And she's the soothsayer, but it's the twist later that he is also psychic, that it's a family trait. Oh, okay. I'm going to have to go back and watch that. Like, uh, I don't remember that, but that's awesome. And yeah, I, I mean, they, um, I mean, let's face it. They, the reason being is they didn't realize that obviously one day Peter Capaldi is going to play the doctor. Um, but, being they accidentally in, foreshadowed it beautifully. Yes, uh, and 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 it works. Like obviously, Doctor Who, it's all loosey goosey, wibbly wobbly, timey wimey. Um, yeah, I can't believe actually we finished talking about series two without talking about Blink. Just thinking I know, about right? it. I, I think we just assumed that everyone knows what Blink is by now because it's uh, like the most famous episode of uh, New mm, Who. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. It is the most famous. For those who don't know, go and watch Blink. Don't listen to us talk about it. Just go and watch it. It's the episode that doesn't really have Dave and Tennant in it, and it's the uh-huh. episode that means that some people cannot walk alone past statues. No, that that episode created such a fear in me that, yeah, I, it still gets me. Yeah, me too. I, I, I mean, I won't say I'm scared, but like I often like do the whole thing where I, I, I try and not to blink for as long as possible around statues sometimes. It's that it's that bit at the end of the episode where it's just showing you a statue after statue after statue after statue. It's just like, it's like fuck, there is a fuck ton of statues everywhere. Oh, you should try living in London. There yes. are parts of the city that are just full of the buggers. Oh, they're waiting. They're waiting. Lonely assassins. Ah, oh, and they're a great concept. Quantum locked lonely assassins. Um. But yes, so moving through season four, we have things like the planet that you'd, yeah, whatever. That there's, it's, I mean, it's, it's all right. It's okay. Like, should we be having these creatures as slaves when all they want to do is be slaves? Like, that's the kind of question that's brought up. But then once again, are possessed by something. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Um, then we have the Satan pit. Yeah. We have uh, the two parts of which is the Sontaran stratagem and the Poison Sky, where the Sontarans not good. return. Yeah, not great. But I mean, we have units show up. Um, yeah, it's true. To fight them, but the the actual conceit of the episode of Satnav being evil, like we get the whole use like an everyday item to become scary, but you know, Satnav's scary enough as it is anyway. So. <laughs> Well, I think that's the gag. It's long enough ago that there were still news stories about people following their sat-nav off cliffs and things. So <laughs> sat-nav as evil was, yeah. was kind of a low-hanging fruit. Yeah, definitely. We have the uh, the out of um, uh, canon and storyline uh, significant episode, The Doctor's Daughter, where David Tennant met God. his future wife who also happens to be the daughter of Peter Davison. So that's bloody weird, isn't it? Um, so during the episode The Doctor's Daughter, the Doctor met the Doctor's Daughter and fell in love with the Doctor's Daughter. 
Oh dear. The amount of times though I've seen people like I, I troll through stuff about Doctor Who online all the time, and loads of inane people keep saying, When's she gonna come back? When's she gonna have her own spin-off series? And I'm like, No, don't do you not remember that episode? It was pretty bad. Like Well, there is a reason that the rumor persisted so long, which is at the end of the episode, the doctor's daughter dies. Yeah. And then comes back to life. Yeah. And it was widely known at the time that it was Stephen Moffat who requested that she come back to life, who added that note, as it were. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, yeah, yeah. And so when he took over as showrunner, the very next season, uh, after the specials, um, a lot of people were like, well, Stephen Moffat wanted the Doctor's daughter to survive. He must have had a reason. And that's why the when is she coming back thing has persisted for so oh, long. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. That's hilarious. Um, there's no reason for her to come back, in my opinion. Like, there's no... No, I agree. There's no reason whatsoever. Like, you know, we... <laughs> I'm not even going to go into it. Like it's just, it's just a bad episode, and you find out, oh, they've been having this war that's that started on fucking Tuesday. Like it's like, yeah. right, okay, you couldn't have worked that out a bit earlier. Like, really, just because it's in a different language and conveniently the TARDIS doesn't translate that language. I mean, come on, come on. And then then there's there is the unicorn and the wasp, which is literally just a fight with a giant wasp. I feel is the worst episode of New Who. That's, in my opinion, my worst. No, so much worse it's than Unicorn. No, it's not. This one's worse. No, because Unicorn and the Wasp doesn't have a joke about a woman being reduced to a blowjob machine. Oh, does it? Yeah, it does. Because remember, it's just her face. Oh, my God! Yes, you're right. Yep. What? And, and that comes from the fucking competition where they had a child right into Blue Peter to give the episode <laughs> yes. uh, idea. So obviously kids are going to be watching it because it's the one type of Blue Peter and it's the one where they imply a joke about how their relationship isn't over just because she's a face. And there's <laughs> they can do together. And I'm like, you fucking what? Oh my god! One, that's an incredibly sexist joke. And two, you're doing it in the, the one episode oh. that is going to have a vast preschool audience. <laughs> you know, Jesus Christ, guys! <laughs> that they definitely dropped the. Oh my God! I you dude. Yeah, you're totally right. I I completely concede, but that is also hysterically bad. Like it's not even. I know, obviously, it could be deemed offensive, but it is so bad that that's funny. Like, oh my God, how could they even consider putting that in the show? I oh, know, right? My God. But, but Unicorn we... and the Wasp is the next worst episode of okay. You Who. I won't argue with you there. Fair, fair. However, after Unicorn and the Wasp, we are treated to arguably the best two-parter in New Who, which is Yes, and the silence. start of an arc that ran uh... until the most recent series, and I adored because I love River Song, the yes. character that is introduced oh, and killed off. In this two-parter. Silence in the Library and Forest of the Dead. Um, the Doctor and Donna, they basically uh, join a team of archaeologists, I think they say they are, going to... They a... are, yeah, because remember, it's Professor Song. She oh, yes, Professor yes. Professor of Archaeology. Professor of Archaeology. Going to a scientific 51st century, I think it is, library uh, that is basically an entire moon 
that is a planet, a, a moon-sized library that hangs in space. And we have this, we start with this little girl who's um, in like a ordinary modern-day living room, and she is frequented with sort of nightmarish visions, but every now and then Dr. Moon, this man who makes things better, shows up and sort of calms her down and it's really weird and then she opens her eyes again and she's in this library and the doors burst open and doctor uh, the doctor and donna are there and it's really weird and confusing um but they're in this library they run into this person called river who claims uh that she knows the doctor intimately yet the doctor has no memory of her whatsoever and this is the start of the story between the Doctor and River Song, where the first time he meets her is the last time she meets him. Oh yeah. my god. And it's having now watched obviously all of River's um, you know, story with Matt Smith and later on Capaldi as well. Oh, like, really? <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. The Christmas... That I was so glad they finally did the screwdriver thing. They finally, I was worried they weren't going to do it. Um, yeah, I know. Um, and yeah, so having seen all of her story, and then you go back and you watch Forest of the Dead, and it is the most heartbreaking end to a companion story I think I've, I think exists. I think it's probably the best exit of a companion, that episode. Um, yeah. Oh, I agree. I mean, and the fact that it's what they lead with is genius. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. They lead with that, and like the story goes, is that this library essentially thousands upon millions, trillions, even uh, of of books, like uh, the last sort of bastion of where books are still being made uh, are made of paper, are in this library, right? And there's everything in there, including uh, a book that. River, I uh, know she already has it, but she has a book essentially, which is all of the Doctor's future adventures, things that he hasn't witnessed yet. Spoilers. It, it's her and blue book. <laughs> it's her blue book. And this library, this moon sized library, is deserted. And that is because the Vashta Narada, these microscopic, uh, vicious, piranha like beings, uh, manifest as shadows. And if you find that you have two shadows, one of those shadows will clearly be the Vashnarada, which eats you, like, consume you, like that. And they're terrifying. Once again, Doctor Who, as we mentioned before, making a very simple concept utterly horrendous. And, and a very uh, clever one, of course, if there are two light sources, you will have two shadows. Yes, that's also true. <laughs> I realised that as I was saying it. I was like, well, not necessarily. <laughs> but, um, yeah, it was, uh, it was a really good one. But, but it's, the, it's, it's the suits that they wear, though. The space yes. Space. Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah, they have some it, really it cool suits. It makes it so haunting when uh, the first one dies. Evangelista. Yes. And her suit... Uh, still has because these suits are connected to their brains they're sort of um, brain powered suits, there's a direct link and so the suit still has just a little bit of her consciousness in it 
she's already died. Mm. But the suit keeps repeating her last words over and over. Until River has to go and turn her off. Yeah. It's, it's haunting. It's fucking haunting that moment. It is, yeah. Uh, and that is, once again, very cleverly like paid off at the end as well. Um, and you have this emotional scene where they, they, they realize that this library is actually um, the housing of a, uh, a sentience known as Cal. And Cal essentially was a little girl that was dying and a father, a multi-trillionaire, basically created the library. So not only could her consciousness be preserved, but she could have an infinite amount of stories to occupy her throughout her eternal uh, time of being in this mainframe, essentially, when she sadly passes away. Uh, and they're trying to reboot this thing to save the planet itself from being eradicated by the Vashta Narada. And uh, for reasons, we won't, oh, won't go into the whole reason why, but it turns out that essentially, I can't remember why she has to actually, but um, uh, it's it's they, they basically need to jumpstart the uh the actual mainframe by putting like an organic life force into it or something isn't it um if i remember rightly basically the cal the computer was overloading because charlotte's consciousness had saved everyone from the library when the vashta narada attacked by uploading them all. Yes, saved, as in the computer term, saved. That was clever. Yes. <laughs> and so Doctor says he wants to free everyone, because at this point Donna's been uploaded as well. That's right, yes. And the Vashtan, he negotiates with the Vashtan Narada. Oh, that's so cool. And, and they say, one day, after that one day, this place is ours. Anyone here, we take. Um... But he's to do this, he has to hook himself up to the computer. Yeah. Which he announces will kill him. Yeah. And that's when River knocks him out, handcuffs him, and does it herself. <laughs> Why do you have handcuffs? Spoilers. <laughs> Spoilers. <laughs> <It's River. laughs> yeah. Um, and that is, uh, to my mind, one of the most beautiful scenes because. Like, she's there and she says, uh, you know as well as I do that this will kill you stone dead. And that will mean that everything that we've ever had, everything that you're yet to experience, will have never happened. Yes. And I'll be damned so if I'm going to let that happen. these memories of him. Yeah. He doesn't know who she is. Yeah. But she has every memory of their relationship. So she knows she cannot let this happen. And uh, and it's... it, it, it God, it makes me, like, my eyes glaze over just thinking about it now, actually. It's specifically, it's a death he would not regenerate from. No, he wouldn't. It's, it's basically the, the power of, like, an entire planet-sized mainframe blasting into him. Like, even as a Time Lord, they can't re resist that amount of energy, like, from just utterly disintegrating. I think a lot of people who uh, try and... Uh, argue that the fact that River had some regeneration energy in her herself meant she might not have died here. Forget uh, yeah. that it, it would have killed the Doctor outright. It's definitely yeah. going to kill River outright. And she has this... Oh, it's such a beautiful line. She's like, uh, she's like, don't blame yourself. Don't worry. 
um, you you still have all of this to come, and I wouldn't let this. Um, uh, I wouldn't like let go of any uh, this for the world, you know. And he's like, "There's a, he's like River, you know my name. There's only one person I could tell my name to. There's only one way that I could." And then as he's saying that, then boom, she's just gone, and it's like, oh my god, it's like heartrending. And there's like this voiceover of River talking about the Doctor, as she'd explained before that once she saw a different man. Uh, obviously, a future doctor make armies turn tail and run away, um, and how he could look at the TARDIS and open the doors with a click of his fingers. Um, and you have Tenet at the end, sort of looking at the TARDIS, raising his fingers and concentrating with all his might and clicking, and then the doors open, and it's just like, oh my god, that's so beautiful. And then he remembers, oh my god, why did I give him my screwdriver? Because uh, she's had a sonic screwdriver of his the whole time and he just doesn't know why. And he opens it up and he sees one of those life-preserving elements, those um, uh, data sticks that have been in all the suits that have enabled the consciousness to stick around in the first place. And he legs it through all the library, the music soaring, and he manages to upload her consciousness into this mainframe. So while River is dead, River is gone, she can at least have this glorious infinite afterlife with a million different stories for her to enjoy for the rest of her, uh, whatever her existence is. And it is beautiful. And while all the people trying to say, oh, she could have regenerated, I think they're wrong. (laughs) They're wrong. Data can be transferred. Yes. So if you were to see a powerful machine consciousness later, I, I would argue that that might be River. Maybe. As, a, as, like, a... like, as, as Zoe is pointing out behind me, because she knows exactly what I'm hinting at, like a powerful machine consciousness that would uh, move heaven and earth to engineer the events that would lead to the creation of River Song. Oh, yes. Yes. Oh, that is interesting. Mm, isn't it? River Song has no beginning and no end. She is the Alpha and Omega. She has no beginning, she has no end. Oh my a god, it's going to be Omega! <laughs> Was responsible for her own birth. Oh, that's really cool. That's a headcanon. Yeah. But she is responsible for her own conception. Do you uh, wanna... And then Midnight. Oh, yeah, Midnight's pretty To be cool. honest, it's a good episode, but it's a very different feel. And you can't follow that two-parter. No, you really can't Because it follow. is, like I was saying, it is arguably the greatest of New Who. Like, my God, my goodness me, it's incredible. Like, yeah, after this two-parter set in this planet-sized library where, you know, every written word of the galaxy exists and machine consciousnesses are preserved for all time in this virtual reality and millions die and millions are saved and the Doctor meets River for the first time and loses her. After this epic, we have an episode where Donna thinks that the Doctor's idea is stupid, goes sunbathing, and the Doctor gets locked in a tram and has a fight with someone who keeps repeating him. Oh, this this episode affected me badly. It's oh, hard it's to watch. It's a good episode, but it's hard to watch. Quite different. Yeah, like it's yeah. it's. A, um, I can't remember her name. She's a really good actress. Um, who 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 plays this person who is possessed by this creature that essentially. Is, is, is kind of this weird kind of alien mockingbird-esque creature 
that you know, it inhabits you know, your every personality trait before it can then become you. It's really weird. Well, the thing is that they are on a planet that is entirely made of diamond. Diamond planet, yeah, that's so cool. And no, it the the light out there on the planet is it's right next to a sun or something, isn't it? It's yeah, like if you go out there, you're toast. Yeah, it's like you cannot survive on the surface outside yeah. of a machine of some kind. Yeah, and this you know the whole thing that they've been told all, all along that nothing can exist out there. You know, there is no way that there is life out there. And then their pod that they're in gets stuck for a bit, and then there's yeah, a it knock breaks on, down. It, then there's a knock on the door, mm. and then it's yeah, like, and that's when it all starts kicking off. Yeah, yeah, it's a weird one. Uh, for those of you who are fans of. Uh... I don't know if there are. I don't know if they exist because I didn't like the show particularly. But for those of you who are fans of the BBC Merlin show, that was where that that <laughs> guy who played Merlin got his big break. He was in that episode. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, but yeah, it was good. I'm sure and... There are fans of Merlin. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just playing. I just didn't like it very much. That's all. Um, I was I was bitter because it took the time slot that Doctor Who would have been on. <laughs> had they not still been making it, you know, do you know what I mean? So it that's was, true. Yeah, the gap between Doctor Who and the next uh, the next season of Doctor Who. Um, but then we have what arguably we were talking about that wonderful. Uh, admittedly, obviously, Simon said he didn't like it like this so much because of the 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 Ten and Rose relationship at the end of Doomsday. That wonderful, lovely bow that is tied onto the end of that story is now ripped open with all of the force and ill thinking of the end of the Russell D. T. Davis era. Um, yeah. And throughout all of this season, we've seen uh, hints that Rose is um, basically trying to get the doctor's attention from the other side of the uh, different parallel universe. We have a show called uh, an episode. Is it turn left? It is, isn't left, it? Yes. Yes. Where, uh, admittedly, quite a cool concept for a an episode. It basically posits what had what would have happened if um, Donna had turned uh, left. Uh, no, if she turned right on a day that she actually turned left in a car. If you've seen Sliding Doors, this is the exact same conceit, except yes. instead of relationship or no relationship, it's Doctor Who or no Doctor Who. Yeah, and it, it posits if the Doctor had died facing off against the Rachnos, a spider creature that was featured in um, Catherine Tate's first appearance, The Runaway Bride, had he actually perished in that uh, in that confrontation, like, what would have happened? And it goes through the season of all that has led up to that point, and basically all the big things that would have gone horribly wrong had the Doctor not been there. A giant replica spaceship version of the Titanic plowing into Buckingham Palace. Um, <laughs> there's one of them. Um, causing Big Ben. Yep, all of it. Like, in fact, the Titanic, because of its like nuclear core, basically eradicates the su- the southern, basically all of the south of the UK. It's gone. Like, did Dune turn up because they wouldn't have been stopped in Smith and Jones? Yeah, yeah. Um, the basically would have succeeded in the Poison Sky. 
basically all the two-parters have happened, is what it establishes. Yes. And not been prevented by the Doctor. Mm-hmm. And um, it's basically Donna trying to function in this nightmare world, still thinking that something, obviously something's wrong, but something is wrong with her. She feels like there's something on her back. Um, and it transpires. People keep pointing it out, though. Yeah. This horrifying insect-like creature that she keeps catching, like, uh, a flash of in the mirror or something, but then instantly forgets about it. It's really weird. Uh, and then all of a sudden, she's confronted by Rose Tyler, who is now working with, like, units and stuff, like, saying, this has all gone horribly wrong. This is a uh, a catastrophe um, that is unmaking the uh, the universe as we know it. The stars are going out. Um, this is why she's been able to jump back to the uh, original dimension she's come from. What is going on with the stars? The, the stars are going out. And... Uh, for reasons that I can't remember, they end up... I think they end up killing Donna to reset it. She kills herself. Yeah, which is pretty grim. It's, well, it's, and then It's because uh, Rose is like, do you want to fix this? Basically, and it's along the lines of you have to sacrifice yourself to, to put it right. Yeah. We, we need the Doctor, is what it is. And... Um, She's like, I don't know who the Doctor is, but she does know who the Doctor is. It's one that she had, she doesn't know who he is, but has that feeling that she that he does, she does know who he is, and yeah. understands that he is needed. And it's really again heart wrenching what she has to go through to do it, and it's just like, well, and more to the point, <laughs> yeah, like because they send her back in time to kill herself. Oh, that's it, yeah. And what she does is she walks out into the street to get run over by a truck to cause a traffic jam so that Donna has to turn left. Oh, yes, that's it. That's yeah, it. that's it. Yeah. yeah. Which is pretty harrowing, quite cool time travel stuff, sort of. Um, like Lucy Goosey, once again, but you know, it, it, it works in the story. So it was like, oh, that's a bit grim. And then. Uh, she's reverted back to the life that she's with. She she's currently living. She's with the doctor. Everything's fine. And then the TARDIS cloister bell uh, well, no, starts. First, not everything is fine. First of all, Donna tells the doctor that Rose gave her a message for him. Oh, yeah. well, she didn't know it was Rose though. That's the thing. Yeah, no, that's the point. Yeah, it's to to Donna. It's just someone gave me a message for you, and the message is bad, Wolf. Oh yeah, and he fucking loses his shit. He's and like, that's what? when the cloister bell starts ringing. Yeah. Yes, and then they're running around and they see like the TARDIS, which usually has police public call box on the top of it, has now been replaced with Bad Wolf. Uh, or like basically it's everywhere. And they're like, oh my God, Bad Wolf. And then <laughs> dang, 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 cliffhanger. Uh, so once again, a really great setup in a way. Despite the fact that obviously we ignore the fact that they, you know, they brought her back or whatever, it's still quite dramatic, still quite exciting. Oh my God, what are they going to do? And then we have um, Journeys and. And what's the other Stolen one called? Stolen Earth and Journey's End. That's it. Stolen Earth and Journey's End. So the planets in the sky have been disappearing. Um, once again, Rusty Davis, uh, <laughs> two-parter uh, um, finale. Everything is at stake. This time, the entire universe, because the Daleks have returned. They are invading Earth. Um, and the Earth has been stolen, transported through time and space to, time and space to this strange collection of planets planets that have been aligned in a certain way to generate enough energy for 
uh, uh, some kind of devious, uh, super-powered weapon. Basically, the planets have been aligned to power a super-powered weapon called the Reality Bomb. And surprise, surprise, we're bringing back an old-school Who villain uh, from the Shadows. We have excellently played, I will add, uh, Davros, played by Julian Bleach. Yes. Like, as silly as this story was. And it was pretty silly. Silly as all, uh, yeah, as everything. I can't fault Julian Bleach's Davros. Perfection. He's so good. Yeah. Like, in a, in a way, I think he's he, he might actually be better than Wisher in some ways, who played the original. In some ways. I, I would not have agreed with you until we saw him facing off against Capaldi. I completely agree, and that is a story we'll have to get to, I dare say, another time. Um, you might be right. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll address the... that. <laughs> we'll address that. Uh, yeah, when we do. But yes, the uh, the the um, the spiritual successor to Genesis of the Daleks happens in series nine of Doctor Who, and it's incredible. I love that two-parter. Um, but yeah, so uh, the world is at stake once again. The entire universe is at stake. Davros wants to unmake everything because he feels that you know he has. Davros has always had this thing of you know if if he had the power to destroy entire worlds. Screw it, he'll do it because it means that he has the power to do it. It, it. He's insane. He wants nothing more than to demonstrate that his genius is not only going to destroy the world, but finally defeat the Doctor. And yeah, something weird happens. <laughs> because, you know, <laughs> Russell T. Davis, Deus Ex Machina, that's how it goes. Basically, cut a long story short, David Tennant lost his hand in a sword fight. The Doctor lost his hand in a sword fight. When he, um, when he first regenerated. When he, yes, when he first regenerated and he had enough residual regeneration and literally to grow that hand back when he literally within his first few hours of uh, regenerating. Fine. So that hand has been sitting in a sample jar for a long time. Yeah. And we're thinking, oh, it's going to be some cool story point to come to come along with that. That's awesome. Uh, the uh, the master had used that hand to know what his DNA was for the whole Dobby saga, which we have already explained. And now it sits handily in the TARDIS. Um, and basically, Ten sees Rose, finally, after all this time, at the end of a road, whilst Earth is being invaded by the Daleks. And they run together, sweeping music, as if this could only be augmented further by them in a grassy meadow. But they're not. They're on a road. And it's like, oh my god, they're finally going to be back together. And then there's a Dalek, and it shows up, and it goes, bam, and it shoots ten in the chest. And he goes down like a sack of shit. And you know what? At the time, I was like, holy shit, a surprise regeneration. Oh my god, I'm losing my shit. I'm really upset. I love David Tennant. I love Doctor Him as the Tenth Doctor. <laughs> Oh no, what? Um, and the episode ends with him going, I'm sorry, it's too late. Ugh, I'm regenerating. Boom. And the regeneration process starts. And we're like, oh my God. This didn't leak. Finally, Doctor Who managed to keep a secret. Oh my God. 
No. (laughs) (laughs) At the last second. Well, and at the start of the next episode. Yes, he is regenerating. They're like, oh my god. Hanger in the middle of the two-parter is is Tennant is shot and is regenerating, and we're like, what, what? Dun dun. Yeah. Okay, so start of the next episode. Oh, wait, I have a handy hand here. Yes. And for some reason, him pouring regeneration into his hand managed to... Because oh, it was his healthy DNA or something, he was able to stop himself from regenerating. And it's like, oh. Yeah, and... he used enough regeneration energy to heal himself and then dumped the rest into the hand and grew a backup doctor. <laughs> yeah. A uh, half... Human doctor. And I'm it's not like... sure where the human bit comes from. No. No, I don't know where it comes from either. They Well, it only happens, that's right, because Donna touches the hand, then he shows up. Yeah. So it's a bit of Donna in him as well. Um, which is so so weird. Um, he's only got one heart, hasn't he? So Yeah, he's only got one heart. He can't regenerate. And this doctor is bloody psychotic. He, well, well it's he's psychotic. He tries to murder Davros, but you know who? That's fair. That's fair enough, I reckon. But um, it's it's the way Tent was at the start of the season. Yeah, kind of. It's what it's how it's it's portrayed that this is this is the Doctor before he got all the experiences that happened that led him to this point. Yeah, you know, so he's fresh. Yeah. And he's in that post-regeneration mania that we saw Tennant have. Yeah. It's still not very good, though, is it? No, it's not. It's just <laughs> bad. And I'll be honest, like, it's all pretty fucking bad. <laughs> but I really, really have a problem with the end of this. What, where... when they make the Daleks suddenly dance around? Well, no, that's shit, too. But no, <laughs> yeah, I... It's like, what? Seriously, where they take Donna's memory of the Doctor away from her. Oh, yeah. That's the thing. She she becomes a Time Lord. She's also like a Time Lord sort of hybrid. And and it's going to kill her. And she chooses death with that knowledge over a mundane life. And the Doctor takes that choice away from her. And that, to me, is out of character and really shitty. Yeah. It completely, completely cuts off Donna as a character at the knees. Yeah. And and it wrecks her arc. I really am angry about this. Uh, it In terms of writing, it's one of the, the biggest problems I have with Russell T. Davis's period is this complete taking away from the character, the, the companion character with like the most agency, the most force of will the most yeah. independent, taking that choice away from her. Mm-hmm. It's actually, it's worse than what they did with Martha in her, the entirety of her season. It guts the character. And it's a, it's a really shitty act on the part of the Doctor. And they also, and we're going to, I think we're going to top this off with the ending of uh, Russell T. Davis and Tennant's era. But they I also... RTD era show and yes. we'll do a Moffat show another time. Oh my God. Um, but I, I will say though, when they return, when he returns Donna to her family, 
that scene of him in the rain. Ah, uh, like dad's granddad saying, yeah. "I'll remember you for her" and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, that hit so hard. It was it gutting. I was still so angry at him. Yeah, but it was angry. Like, yeah, I could not feel sorry for the doctor at that moment at all. Like I know that's the emotional response they were trying to engender with that shot of him in the rain, and I'm like, no, fuck you. <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I, I'm with you there, Simon. Uh, and they, they, they then unmake that later as well, kind of. It's like, it's so weird, and it's so fucked <laughs> at this point. It's so fucked. Like, they, they had, like, a really good opportunity to, like, have a, a character death. Like, they were scared to kill her. They were just scared to kill her at the end of the day. And... I've got to say, they should have. They should have done a bloody Adric. We spoke about Adric in yep. the uh, in the the other episode. Adric uh, heroically went down uh, defeating the Cybermen to save the rest of them, and it was epic. Even though I hated Adric, that was cool. Um, they they haven't had the nerve to kill someone up to this point. This would have been well, yeah to kill off a companion. Yeah, this would have been the time and the way to do it. Yeah. And they didn't. So, Doctor Who is thrown into a kind of tempest of scheduling and uh, weirdness because uh, on the National Television Awards, uh, uh, after this season had aired, David Tennant, whilst performing in his run of The Hamlet, which I luckily was able to see, I said in The Hamlet, in Hamlet, I was lucky enough to see I that production. To go and see that. Oh, it was so good, man, with Patrick Stewart as bloody Polonius just spot on not Polonius Cornelius um yeah great stuff but he announced uh whilst he was there uh, and the cameras were on him and stuff that he was leaving the nation uh gives a collective oh well most people did some people were happy because it also meant that Russell T was going but never mind and they said, I was delighted that Russell T was going and as much as I enjoyed Tennant's run I felt like it was the right time for him. It to was definitely away. the right time for him to go. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. Although there was a really cool interview with uh, Moffat and Tennant where they actually had a conversation about what... Because Moffat had come up with a season that would have been Tennant's last, but what would have yes. been his first, and it's wicked. And we'll talk about that probably another time, I reckon. Yeah, because um, that's Moffat era. Because that's it Moffat era. Moffat era. Yes. Yeah. So... He's going, and they say, right, four specials, and he's gone. We have an Easter uh, special where Tennant is trying to help people who are stuck on a number, uh, on a big London red uh, a bus yeah. that's been t- transported to a, a different world. We have episode. The Waters of Mars, which was pretty cool, where the Doctor was basically up against like, uh, like a hydro monster that was like, Possessing people through water was really weird, but kind of cool. Like, it had cool effects. Um, all makeup and, like, jets of water dribbling out of people's mouths. It was pretty terrifying. And at the end of that, the Doctor goes too far. He decides, screw this, I'm a Time Lord, and it will obey me. Starting to sound very much like the Master. Um, and he fixes it. He goes back in time and he fixes it. Like, they always say, why doesn't the Doctor go back in time and fix it? He does. And... Everything goes horribly wrong. Um, 
as per we see consequences we see that the uh the, the woman that he saved uh causing time to be rewritten decides to take her own life in defiance of his selfish act um and it, it's just badly wrong and he realizes i've gone too far and time is beginning to rupture and he gets into his tardis for uh, that's the end, and we now have a two-part Ooh, special. There's just one thing about the end of that that I find is very important as to where the Doctor's mind is at this moment. Go ahead. It ends with the cloister bell. Yes. And normally, when the cloister bell goes off, the Doctor realizes shit is up and gets worried and starts looking for a solution. Yeah. This is the only time when the cloister bell has gone off. He's looked at it and gone, "No." Yeah. He's just turning to the cloister bell and going, "No, no yep. way," and that's that's where the doctor's mind is right now, which is really cool in a way. Like I like that because it was like, I really like Planet of the Dead and Waters of Mars. I thought they were both great. You have yeah. completely ignored the next Doctor, but that's fine. Everyone else did. That was a Christmas special. We've been ignoring the Christmas specials. <laughs> let's doubly ignore that one. Yes, let's. Um... Oh God, that was terrible. Um... So, yeah. Cyber King. Oh. Fuck. <laughs> God, that whole bit. I love that that gets eaten in the Moffat era. It gets eaten by time. It falls through a crack in time and the Cyber King episode never happened. Yes, really? yes, you're right. Yeah, <laughs> yep. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's true. Um, so, uh, basically, turns out the Master had managed to transfer his consciousness into a ring. He is resurrected. And... He is a bit annoyed and is going about wrecking shit up on planet Earth. Um, the Doctor had received receives a warning uh, uh, throughout these specials at the end of Planet of the Dead, saying he will knock four times. And this is the these are the words that are basically foreshadowing his doom. He will knock. It's, it's the bad four times. Oh. Yes, he will knock four times. So he's like, oh shit, and then he finds out it's the Master. Uh, from the Ood, and they're like, yeah, he's going to knock four times, and basically, Doctor, your game's up. You're done. And he's like, no, it isn't. And a strange story happens. Uh, it's a bit weird. It's very weird. Basically, the the whole first part of that episode, it was it was technically a Christmas special, which I really hope they stop making the Doctor's last episode's Christmas specials because it happened to Matt Smith, and I think it's happening to Capaldi as well now with the recent news. Um, yeah, it looks like it. And I really wish they'd stop that. I really wish they'd hold off because Christmas episodes, not great. Um, but anyway, the Doctor is going about trying to stop the Master, and he basically, the Master is, is really weird. Like, he's, like, electrified and... He's sort of breaking down, like he's come back, but he's come back wrong, and he can like fly through the air and fire lightning bolts, and he hits the doctor with a lightning bolt. It's really weird. He has <laughs> and... become a manic supervillain, and it's... I mean, John Sim is the man to do it. He's great. Love him. It doesn't feel very like the master, but it feels very like John Sim. Mm, yeah. Well, I reckon it's no. I think it's the script again because I yeah, I never I never saw the appeal in making the master entirely insane well at least before missy but she's insane in another way um <laughs> her insanity is very controlled thank you very much yes but 
like you know what I mean there's a difference like she's quite refined in the way that yes. she's well, that's what I mean her insanity is very controlled yes uh, yeah. this master is not controlled no. he is very specifically out of control and that's what I mean by John Sim actually in terms of the material he was given the way he plays a manic psychotic doctor is so full of energy and charisma that he almost sells it it's a terrible idea that he almost sells. Yeah, I, I, I like him, and I liked that. Because in the bits where he isn't like going nuts and screaming because of the script demanding it, and when he's just talking to him, he's like spot on. I think like yeah, there's I mean. a bit John's fantastic. Yeah, and they they have this bit where we have the, we didn't go into it before, but like basically. Uh, an attributing factor of um, the master being insane is because he hears the sound of drums. He hears the sound in his head the whole time. Basically, thinks of the time war and stuff like that. It's really weird. And they basically do a knockoff mind meld. Like the, the time lords can sort of mind meld, like Vulcans do. Kind of, it's weird. Um, and the doctor like recoils and thinks, "Oh my god, I heard it too." And Suddenly the master is vindicated and he goes, you heard it too. I'm not insane. You heard it too. It's real. Um, and the uh, the master basically manages to engineer this immortality gate, blah, blah, blah. It's going to cause the end of the world. And for some reason, thank you very much, Ross G. Davis. The master plan is that he makes the master race. Ha, ha, ha. He makes every person on Earth, apart from the Doctor, the Master. Isn't that hilarious? Isn't that... It's that scene in The Matrix where everyone is Agent Smith and oh, all the Master. God. And it's not good. And they completely retcon it at the beginning of the next episode. So what was the point? But anyway, um, we see the Doctor faced with all of these Masters. Oh my God, the, doctor, the Masters try and kill Donna, but then there's a big blast of energy because the Doctor somehow knew this is going to happen and somehow programmed her mind to defend herself with time lord regeneration blasts whatever and as the the uh the you know the, the the show's wrapping up we've been hearing this uh this narration from a very familiar voice timothy dalton uh of bond fame is sort of narrating this episode as we go and there is a big reveal right at the end, which says, and as humanity uh, pushed the limits and uh, uh, blotting out into the darkness, it is now that the Time Lords return for Gallifrey for the end of time. And the Time Lords are back, led by Rassilon. Uh, and I thought, you know what, that episode was shit, but it was worth it for the really cool bit at the end where we see Rassilon with the Time Lords. That was cool. I mean, that's kind of the theme of Russell T. Davis's final two-parters, is the stories are absolutely shit, but they always have this moment of gold that you got to watch them for. Yeah, definitely. And I think there are two moments of gold in this one. One is Rassilon and all of the Time Lords coming back, and the other is Wilf's... Yes. Like that moment is done beautifully. Oh my god, let's talk about that. So basically there's a whole shitstorm where it's kind of built up to the fact that the doctor is destined to die, outright die, okay? But and he will knock four times 
the knocks will be the foreshadowing of the doctor's death. Yeah. That is what we are told. Yeah. And we go through this whole thing where Rassilon is uh, condemning the Doctor for... It is the Doctor that not only destroyed the Daleks, but the Time Lords as well at the end of the Time War. This is the Doctor being put on trial again. And, again. <laughs> and um, it's a very short trial. And through, uh, through a series of events, the Doctor is at some point going to shoot them. It's really weird. But then he shoots the Immortality Gate, which starts uh, this whole thing where the Time Lords are being dragged back into the nether space, uh, uh, back into the Time War to be condemned to relive that moment over and over again. That's that's really horrible, but fair enough. Um, uh, the Time Lords are obviously at this point like uh, a dictatorship. They are uh, as insane as the Daleks almost. They are out of control. And the Doctor successfully manages to lock them back into the time war with the help of the master who sacrifices himself at the end. Hooray! Bo neatly wrapped up and um, uh, he, the doctor's like, I'm alive. I'm alive! I'm alive! And then he hears it and he looks and Wilf is sealed himself into this thing that's been set up before this um, uh, radiation uh, sort of um, what is it? What even? What is it? It's like a radiation. It's the immortality gates isolation chamber. That's it, an isolation chamber. And he realizes that you can't open the door without releasing the radiation. Wilf has gone in there to hide because he's terrified of the Time Lord shitstorm that has just erupted in the room. You can't blame him for that. Um, and the Doctor just bloody loses it, and he's like, oh. Well, he doesn't say this, but he's like, for fuck's sake, <laughs> like all that I've done, and this is what this is my reward. And he's just like, you know what? Actually, no. Thinking about it, this is an honor, Wilf. And he gets inside, uh, and he has to press the button which locks his door, which opens Wilf, which allows yeah, him to get it's out. It's a complete MacGuffin. Basically, it's got two chambers. Yeah. Only one of which can be open at a time. Yeah. And because the master futzed with it earlier. It's going to be flooded with this huge amount of radiation. So, in order to let Wilf out, the Doctor has to get in the other side and lock himself in. Yeah. Uh, so, he knocked four times, and now the Doctor has to die. Yeah. So, yeah, the Doctor gets in, and I, I remember uh, to be to be fair to this episode, it is utter shite up until this point. It doesn't matter how they got there in the end for me because of the emotional weight that this has like uh being a big fan of david Tennant, like i forgive that episode for the last 15 minutes that we have of him because he gets horribly His horribly goodbye. yeah he gets horribly of honor. yes horribly like racked with pain it's horrible to watch like david Tennant uh screaming his heart out like at this pain and then it's over and he gets up and like he wipes his face and all the wounds that he sustained from this previous injury, this previous uh, story, or whatever, are now gone. And he's like, it started. And he goes and he goes and he goes to see Donna, and Donna's getting married, and he gives the family a lottery ticket that he knows gonna is gonna set them up for life. Like he, he tries to say sorry and thank you at the same time. Um, he goes and he it's sees. Rose. Oh man. Yeah, well, don't forget, he goes and visits Martha and Mickey because they totally had to get married, right? 
Yep, that's true. Yep. And <laughs> like, Sarah Jane. And... For some reason, they have to get married. <laughs> it's like, what the hell? Um, the two outcasts. Yeah, goes to see Sarah Jane. Goes to see um, uh, the 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 uh, Jessica uh, Haynes's character from uh, the Family of Blood, or at least yeah. her ancestor, her uh, descendant, granddaughter. Granddaughter. Yeah. And then he goes to see Rose, and Rose is like, "You've had a bit too much to drink, mate." <laughs> like as he's hiding in the shadows, like he just wanted to like have one last look, I guess, before like he goes off to to die. I um, just wanted to tell her you're about to have a really great year. Yeah, he says, "2005, you're going to have a really great year." And we cycle back round to the very beginning of this episode as we're talking about uh, 2005, this era that has brought Doctor Who back. Uh, for great moments, for bad moments, but at the end of the day, it's a great thing. It's a great show. And Tennant, wounded uh, and uh, in a great amount of pain, limps into the TARDIS and sends it up into orbit. And the music is soaring, and he's taking one last lap of the TARDIS control room, flings his signature brown uh, long coat over the you know one of the railings, and he looks into the camera and he says... I don't want to go. Denial. And he starts bloody regenerating, and because he's been holding it in so long, like a big poo, it explodes the TARDIS. And, <laughs> and it, well, that's that's my thought anyway. Like, um, I mean, he's been yeah, holding it in like a big poo. <laughs> The fuck, that Rob? <laughs> what a weird analogy to make. Oh, my God. No, but it's uh, it's all serious, point. though. In all seriousness, though, I, I can joke about it now, but at the time, I'm bloody crying. Like, these guys know I'm a huge fan of David Tennant. Like, I love all of his work. I think he's uh, a great role model uh, and a, a fantastic human being and a great actor. And... Um, absolutely amazingly dramatic regeneration scene the tardis is all but destroyed by the power of this regeneration as uh we say goodbye to the 10th doctor and we say hello to number 11 matt smith and that is the russell t davis era of doctor who oh my fucking god and long came matt smith an even younger doctor which worried me but i got over it as you'll learn in our next Doctor Who episode. I remember yeah. us having a conversation, Simon, when it was announced. Do you remember? We had a conversation. We were like, he's really young. What the hell? What's going to happen? And thankfully... Well, it didn't help Like that the first sort of press shots we saw of him, he wasn't in costume. No. So it was just him the way he normally dresses in skinny jeans and... Yeah. Like, I can't remember what jacket he was wearing, but he was looking very hipster. Very cool, yeah, yeah. And it was like, oh, shit, really? That's the next Doctor? Okay. But he won me over in a big way. Yeah, he was great. And we will, as Simon rightly said, we will continue this another time. Perhaps uh, uh, on the advent of Series 10 return. Oh, that's a bit soon, actually. It's back in April. That's le- next month, yeah. Yeah. Um. So maybe at the end of Series 10? I don't know. Or when we have some big Doctor Who news, like the next Doctor, because Capaldi's leaving, we're going to find out who is number 13. So very briefly, we're going to wrap this up. We'll obviously do the rest of New Who another time. Any thoughts on who number 13 should be as we're on topic? I think there is a 
wealth of possibilities. Um, and I really think it is time that it wasn't a white guy. Um, it's, it is definitely... I don't care if you change the white. I don't care if you change the guy. I don't care if you change both. But we've had a lot of white guys in however many seasons of Doctor Who it's in now. <laughs> 30-something. Um, 50, give 50, someone yeah. else a chance? Yeah, I mean, to be honest with you, like, uh, I have a, a, a lot of people, like, when... When it was said that Capaldi was um, was leaving, because a lot of people consider me to be the the the, the mate that really loves Doctor Who, a lot of people <laughs> come up to me. As, uh, a lot of people no. say to me, "Oh, Rob, who do you who do you think's gonna be? Who do you want to be?" And I'm like, "Listen, um, I absolutely agree, Simon, that um, diversity would be an excellent thing. I would just." like it if they pick the person who is right for the role at the time. Yes, um, I guess what I'm saying, I don't want them to force the issue, but I want the audition pool to be as wide and diverse as possible. I completely agree. I think yeah. it should be open to everyone. I think the message of the very show, the fact that it's all about change and it's all about... Um, our share humanity and cherishing that. So let us embrace that when considering when who the next Doctor is going to be. And that is all I will say on the subject. I will and be he was happy. A big favourite in the betting odds when Matt Smith took the job. I would still be delighted to see Patterson Joseph take it. Who? Patterson Joseph. Uh, he played uh, the Marquis in Neverwhere. Oh yes. Yes, I know who you mean. Um, let's think. Uh, 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 there was a really cool thing that Neil Gaiman posted. Uh, oh, we didn't. We could get onto the Neil Gaiman episodes next time because I I loved the 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 Doctor's Wife. I think that's probably one of my favorite episodes. Um, but Neil Gaiman posted this thing saying, "Oh, wouldn't um, Gillian Anderson?" be a really good doctor from x-files yeah. i was like i was like oh my god she would be amazing <laughs> um uh there's just so many there's such a wealth of uh, amazing acting talent out there i reckon whoever they get will be spot on i will not lie i am slightly concerned about the guy who is going to be the showrunner i am a uh, i i enjoyed broadchurch which is what he has uh, written, but I, from seeing what he has presented us in his time as a Doctor Who writer, just being brought in, you know how Stephen Moffat was throughout Russell T. D. Russell T. Davis's era. I've not been super impressed. Like I'm just trying to find what he's done. Uh, well, this is the interesting thing about Chibnall. He's written Chibnall. That's it. He's written some gold, and he's written some shit. What gold did he write? Uh, well, Life on Mars, for a start. Um, oh, sorry, yeah. I meant Doctor Who. But obviously, he wrote well, Life on Mars. Life on Mars is amazing. Within, within the Doctor Who milieu, yeah. I, I think I'm allowed to go to Torchwood on this. Go on, then. I'm not a fan of Torchwood, but go on. <laughs> okay, con Countryside was perhaps the closest to pure horror the Doctor Who universe has gotten. True, that was a good one. That was Exit a good one. Wounds, I thought, was emotionally very strong. Okay. Uh, and those were Chibnall. We've we've touched before on how you're not as much of a fan of 42 as I am. True, yeah. But I really liked 42. 
Um, I liked Hungry Earth and Cold Blood. Yeah, he also did Dinosaurs on a Spaceship. He did. But, okay, the thing about Dinosaurs on a Spaceship, it gives you what it says on the tin. And it's it's a fun episode. It's not the deepest. It's not the thinkiest. Oh, we did do Power of Three. Power of Three was really good. Yeah, Power of Three was good. I will concede the Power of Three was good. Uh, So, between Life on Mars, uh, as you say, Broadchurch some of the strongest episodes of Torchwood, and one episode that could have been really strong, but was let down by effects and performance, Cyberwoman. Oh, yes. I don't get why they gave her cyber-high heels, but if they designed the Cyberwoman to be as horrific as the implications were, that could have been a much better episode. Yeah, definitely. Um, I forgot about that. I think Gibnall's written some really good stuff. Okay. Yeah, I, I forgot about Life on Mars, I'll admit. I am a huge fan of Life on Mars. It's why I, I love John Sim. So, yeah, um, fair play. Yeah, all right. I mean, <laughs> we, we've still yet to see. I mean, end of the day, like Moffat, uh, I, I, you know, Moffat, I, I really, really love most of his stuff when he was uh, in the Rusty Davis era. I love a fair bit of his uh, overarching stuff, but lately... Basically, series eight, Capaldi's first was was really bad. Oh, we disagree. Series eight, yeah, not nine because nine's amazing. Nine's amazing, but I really liked eight. Oh, okay. Well, in that case, we will have to cover that when we do the Moffat era. We will, well, guys. Again, <laughs> this is a long one. <laughs> I still need to watch season nine. Nine is incredible, man. Yeah, I enjoyed eight, but I won't argue that nine is it's another level. Yeah. It goes it goes somewhere special. Okay. I have yeah. to get onto that then. Cool. Good job, guys. That was a long one. When we when we start talking about Doctor Who <laughs> You know yeah. it's gonna be a long one. You can, you can <laughs> tell you can tell that the the passion for the franchise is there. So waffling does happen. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and also debates like when we start hitting episodes like forty two. Yeah, um, <laughs> so, we'll not talk about forty two ever again. <laughs> for, for join us at some point in the future for another couple of hours of Doctor Who talk. But until then, you have been listening to Dangerously Unprepared. I've been fantastic. I've been brilliant, and I've been a Lonzi. <laughs> no, no. Well, you know, you could have said Geronimo. <laughs> Goodbye. Bye. That'll do, won't it? <laughs>